Hi, before we begin, I just want to mention India Cooper, copy editor extraordinaire, skilled character actress, Jeopardy legend, and friend and supporter of this podcast, who sadly passed away a couple weeks ago. She was one of our Podomatic subscribers and had been eagerly awaiting new episodes, and her sudden passing is what spurred me to realize that life is short and that I need to make things I care about, like this podcast, a priority. So in a very real sense, this episode and all future ones are dedicated to her. Welcome to episode six of Recreational Thinking with Yogesh Raut. Our guests are James Lasker, David Plotkin, and Nolan Werner. Remember that order. It's arbitrarily determined, but it'll be consistent throughout the game. So first, let's go in that order. Each briefly state where you're Skyping from and maybe one or so sentences about yourself, starting with James. Hi, I'm James Lasker. I'm Skyping from Dallas, Texas, where I have just recently begun a uh, postdoctoral research position at Southern Methodist University. Cool. David? Uh, Hi, everyone. I'm David Plotkin. I'm a PhD student at the University of Florida. Big fan of pretty much all things trivia. This is the newest trivia podcast I've added to my rotation, and I'm excited to be a part of it. Cool. And Nolan? Hi, Nolan Warner, Skyping from Louisville, Kentucky, um, and I feel like the Howard Wallowitz of the group with one PhD student, a postdoc, and I just have a bachelor's, so. Well, it makes shame, you feel, shame. If it makes you feel better, I only have two master's degrees. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like Fry now, or having to go back to college to drop out again because of the educational standards changing. Thank you all. This game is in four rounds, one individual and three specialists. The first round I call the three R's round. It allows me to reduce, reuse, and recycle prior material. Three R's also reflects the ethos of this show. Every week the contestant pool is reduced, my ideas are reused, and jokes like this one are recycled. So these first questions will, will mostly serve as a warm-up, but they'll also be worth a tenth of a point and can serve as tiebreakers if we have a tie at the end. And for this round only, you will answer as individuals. So if the first person the question is directed at misses, the second will get a chance to answer, and then the third will get a chance if the first two miss. Uh, so the later you are in the order, the less of a direct shot you have at answering, but you have more time to think, and some potential answers could get taken off the table. And we'll rotate to each of you gets to answer three questions in first position, three in second position, three in third position. The rules will change for the next three rounds after this one, but I will explain that at that time. All right, so we will start with the first question with James in first position. The June 6th, 1978 premiere of which television program was hosted, oddly, by former Esquire editor-in-chief Harold Hayes, and art critic Robert Hughes. Well, we seem to have stumbled onto uh, a an area of trivia where I have zero knowledge, which is 1970s through 1990s television. But if you're saying that this is a thing that is oddly hosted by some person, I'm going to guess that it is a show that is named for a different person. So let's go with the Ed Sullivan Show. All right, uh, interesting tactic to take. David, next. Yeah, I'm kind of at a loss right now as well, 1978 is a little before my time. I'm trying to think about what could be odd about having people named Hayes and Hughes host a show, possibly because they're men and this is a show about or aimed at female viewership, possibly because the magazine is Esquire. Maybe there's some sort of legal avenue towards that question. I was trying to think if maybe it's a TV show that has a number in the title that's an odd number, the oddly reference there. 
only TV show that's a number that I can think of at the moment is 2020. It's decidedly not odd. So I've got lots of like potential ways to tease out these clues, and I have no idea which one is right, if any. Even though it's not an odd number, I'm just going to go with 2020. Right. So you, you went down a few, you, you mentioned a few interesting things, right? You both kind of mentioned it being a TV program that, you know, is kind of older, but in fact, it's one that's still going today. Oh, um, you mentioned cool. the gender and oddly, the hosts most associated with this program had previously hosted a program called Not For Women Only which is a kind of an odd way to market it. But I mean, really the kind of cutesy thing neither of you picked up on was that this is the first episode we are taping in the year 2020. So it's appropriate to begin uh, with a question about 2020. Oh, how about that? <laughs> so you got it. Yes, that's a pleasant surprise. <laughs> yeah, my guess is we're roots in Masterpiece Theater, so... <laughs> just, just a dumb stab in the dark. Right, the odd being both that they were kind of non-television people and that they did not... They were basically both uh, dumped after the first episode, so they're not at all associated with it the way the more long-term host, uh, like yeah. Hugh Down. Maybe I heard Hughes and Hugh Downs and I subconsciously got them entangled, but however you get there, as long as sure. you get the points. Yeah. Or I guess the these initial questions are worth... 0.1 points each, yes. right? That's how the scoring works. Yep. Right. So an early tenth of a point lead to David. And now David in first position for the next question. Detroit real estate developer and toy hobbyist Richard Kuhn, K-U-G-H-N, is known as the man that saved what company, which he purchased in 1986 from General Mills and sold in 1995 to a group that included Canadian rock star Neil Young. Okay, so I again, I was almost at a loss with this question, but Toys and Neil Young is a trivia chestnut, I guess. I, I know that Neil Young is probably the most famous person that loves toy trains or model trains. So having never heard of this Detroit Coon guy, just the fact that it's Neil Young and Toys... I'm going to guess the company. The question was named the company, right? Company, yes. I'm going to guess the most famous toy train company I know, and that is Lionel or Lionel. All right. So your your logic was exactly correct on that and Lionel LLC. Well, the modern version of the company, Lionel LLC, it had a few other names before then, but Lionel was all that was needed. So you're now two-tenths of a point ahead, and we'll start with Nolan on the next question. According to Judges 16.19 in the King James Version of the Bible, so specifically that translation, the, the King James Version, who specifically shaves off the seven locks of hair on Samson's head that are the source of his strength? Great. Of course, the religion question. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, I'm just going to hope it's Delilah and see if I'm right on that, because I have no other guess. Right. So uh, probably you ask these to people, as even ones familiar with the Bible, 10 out of 10 would say Delilah. But obviously, uh, those kind of really obvious questions don't really have a place on this podcast. So as you uh, surmise, that's not correct. James? Yeah, it would be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so that 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 would have been, been my first guess for sure. Um, so who actually cuts off his hair is the, is the question. I'm, I'm, I mean, if it's not, well, I'm just going to say it's him. He, he cuts off his own hair, but that that's also not right, so I don't know. A decent guess, though. Uh, David? Okay, I have read Book of Judges at some point a long time ago, 
uh, when I was in school. Unfortunately, this was Jewish day school. We read it in Hebrew, so I didn't really retain <laughs> a lot of it because at the time my ability to speak Hebrew was somewhat limited. So I'm just if trying to go through. In Hebrew, nobody will know if it's wrong. So <laughs> <laughs> just just go for a really long theophoric name that ends with Aya or Eel. And, um... I do remember from I think it was a recent episode of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire where they asked about like the longest name in the book uh, in a Bible. It was like Mahershala something, the person that Mahershala Ali was named after. But I don't think that was the book. I think it explicitly was not the book of Judges. So I don't want to guess that just for fun. I, I do know a couple characters from the book of Judges, I'm pretty sure. I think Samuel was a character, although he may have been a judge. And, and I feel like he wouldn't have been the type to just be shaving people. I think there's also a character. I mean, Eli is a pretty common biblical name. I think there's multiple characters named Eli, but I do think there was an Eli in the book of Judges. The only other judge person I could think of is Hannah maybe, but I don't think she was part of the Samson and Delilah story. Um, I'm just going to guess Eli and hope that it's a common enough name that that was one of the people. Eli is my answer. So according to the that specific verse, again, this was worded for the specific wording of the verse. So in that verse, the person who shaves the head is referred to as a man. Now, anything kind of along those lines, probably anything that, you know, said servant or anything like that, I would have accepted. But um, basically, yes, it was an unnamed man. Probably his name was not Eli, since I imagine he wasn't Jewish. I don't really know, but um, none of you got to exactly what the translation said. So it's okay. Uh, yeah. That's what I get for being too specific. Next time <laughs> I answer a question, I'm going to start with man, then I'll say they're alive, and then I'll say they're... <laughs> Their just, last name starts with a consonant. It just kind of worked my way forward. Yeah. All right. So next question, starting with James. Alamut, A-L-A-M-U-T, a 1938 novel by the Italian-born writer Vladimir Bartol, today best known as the inspiration for the Assassin's Creed video game franchise, is probably the most widely read work originally written and published in what language? Did you have a, a year in the early part of that, that question when it was published? Yes, the novel was published in 1938. Okay. Okay, and it was by, so it was, it was published by someone in, in Italy, but with a, at least vaguely Russian name, but it's definitely not going to be the most widely read novel in either of those languages or any language that I've ever heard of. I'm uh, thinking of invented languages now, so maybe, I, I don't think this is even the right time. I don't think it was invented yet, but Esperanto is my guess. It's a good guess, but uh, not correct. David? Wow, I was certain it was going to be Esperanto because I had thought that Esperanto was invented maybe a few decades previously. So if it's not that, boy, that really, uh, I wasn't spending too much time thinking about this because that was what I was, that's what I was going to lock in. <laughs> um, so let's see. So uh, we've got Alamut. It sounds sort of Arabic, but obviously there's been plenty of written works in Arabic well before 1938. What would be so i'm trying to and i can't even think of any other invented languages so an assassin i haven't played assassin's creed i'm wondering if there's a clue there someone who would play the video game might mm -hmm. uh um i'm just i know that assassin's creed the first one took place in the crusades but i think it goes back like i think there are some versions of the game that go all the way back to bc so i'm thinking i'm trying to lean towards aramaic certainly there have been like biblical text published in Aramaic, but those are novels. Those are, so maybe there really hasn't been an Aramaic novel, what we would, the modern day definition of a novel. And just so I don't waste anybody else's time and I don't even come up with anything better, I will lock in with Aramaic. Not entirely sure. I think that might have been a dead language by the 20th century. But yeah, that's, again, I see your logic behind that, but not correct. Uh, Nolan? 
All of us are ready to jump on Esperanto. <laughs> I, David opened yeah. up an avenue for me to think about this, um, and I'm going to guess this, but I have no idea if it's right. I'm going to go with Maltese, the only Semitic language oh. that's an official language in the EU. Oh, interesting. Right. So it was actually James's original, uh, the very first sentence that should have probably been the thread you followed when he mentioned. So I, I kind of bent history a little bit to give you a hint. So although Vladimir Bartol was born in modern modern-day Italy. At the time he was born, it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He was born specifically in the city of Trieste. So if you combine sort of the, the Slavic name with the Italian location, the one sort of Eastern European country that has culturally interchanged with Italy, and specifically that the city of Trieste has been kind of disputed with, is modern-day the nation of Slovenia. And Bartol wow. wasn't of the Slovene minority, and so his work was originally written in Slovene or Slovenian. That is wild. Uh-huh. Wow, yeah, I never would have guessed that. <clears throat> yeah. I had no idea there hadn't been any Slovenian literature, or I guess at least novels. Yeah, we'll be uh, we'll be looking at a few other sort of slightly outside the canon literatures later in the game. <laughs> Can I write a letter to Eastern High School and ask for my money back because they did teach me enough about Slovenian literature? <laughs> <laughs> You right. can do whatever you want. It's a free country, but uh, I don't <laughs> think you're getting your money back. Um. All right. So next one starts with David. Even as we move further into the 21st century, the Miss America pageant and the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue continue to present us with glittering images of conventional femininity. So speaking of these intersections between sex, art, and American culture, in 2019, both the Miss America crown and the coveted cover of the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue went to women with what first name? Hmm. I'm trying to, okay, I think I have read a couple articles about the latest uh, Miss America and Miss Universe pageants. I think there was like, they were mainly about how many of the contestants were academics or of some capacity, doctors or basically learned people. The talent portion was actually demonstrating this knowledge as opposed to just, you know, the standard metrics of beauty that were used as judging for the last however many decades. So like, I think one of them was like a chemist and made some chemical reaction on stage, but none of this is going to help me remember their <laughs> name. If I can remember the country that the winners were from, that would certainly help. I think one of them, I think for Miss Universe, she might have been from South America, maybe Colombia, but that could be way off. That could have been one of the ones in the, the year where Steve Harvey announced the wrong person. The question is about Miss America, though, so I'll tell you the country is the United States of America. <laughs> oh, I thought you said Miss America and Miss Universe. No, Miss America and the cover of the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. Okay, I, I missed the swimsuit issue part. Okay, well, thank you. That does help. So the cover of the Sports Illustrated, so that means that it's got to be, it doesn't have to be, but it should be an athlete. I wonder if it's a male athlete that just has a name that uh, is commonly found in both genders. That would be interesting, but I can't think of anyone. But no, I think the body issue has had men on the cover, but I think the swimsuit issue has only had women on the cover so far, so I won't go down that route. Let's see, Megan Rapinoe was like the sportswoman of the year, athlete of the year or something. I wonder if she was in the cover. I don't think she was. I don't think she was. So I will, if I'm wrong, then I just opened up for someone else to take it. But I'm going to go with, I'll just pick a different member of the U.S. National Women's Soccer Team. Uh, I'll say Carly. That, that's what I'll lock in with. The, the, their name is Carly. 
I think I, I'm not a, a huge expert on this or anything, but I believe this year and maybe in the, the past year, Sports Illustrator did start a trend of issuing multiple covers. So again, this is I'm referring specifically to kind of the cover that fits this question and allows the question to make sense. But Carly, a uh, good guess, but not correct. And so Nolan is next in the order. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm just going with uh, Lucky Johnson here and I'm going <laughs> with the common female name. Let's try Rebecca. All right. Again, good strategy. Good guess, but not correct. And James? So literally this morning, there was a new episode of this SB Nation show I watch called Rewinder. And it was about Ronda Rousey getting knocked out by, I forget her name. But it did mention at some point that she was on the cover of either the swimsuit issue or the body issue. So I'm just going to go with Ronda. Okay, yeah. So I was trying to remember, actually, from my because I think there were three distinct covers this year. And I was going for kind of the, uh, as kind of the, the wording of the question pointing you more toward conventional femininity as going with kind of the more traditional model. I think the other two did have athletes. I think one was Alex Morgan. The other might have been Ronda Rousey, actually. I was trying to remember, now that you mention it, that kind of jogged my memory. But in looking at, and this is maybe a hint for the, the rest of the game to kind of look into the wording of the question. Oh, I, oh, no. I played around with the wording quite a bit to see how I could kind of hide some hints in plain sight. And I ended up using the phrase as glittering images and sex Art and American Culture. Those are both the titles of books by a certain controversial public intellectual named Camille Paglia. So this year's Miss America, Miss Virginia, a graduate student at the VCU School of Pharmacy. She did, in fact, perform the decomposition of hydrogen peroxide as her <laughs> talent in the talent competition. Her name is Camille Schreier. And for the Sports Illustrated one, this goes back to uh, an open casting call they put out a couple years ago, which you can still find on the Internet. It asked for diversity in both size and ethnicity and added, after all, beauty does not conform to any set of stodgy standards. So after, you know, putting that out there, getting thousands of replies, they narrowed them down to one woman who just happened to be young, thin, blonde, Caucasian looking and had the face and proportions of a professional cheerleader, which she had been. I'm sure, you know, that they cast a very wide net. It's a total coincidence. That they just... <laughs> but um, yes, in, in 2015, she stopped cheering for the New England Patriots and perhaps coincidentally became the girlfriend of one of that team's star players, Rob Gronkowski. Her name is Camille Kostek. So the first name shared by both of those women and by the public intellectual is Camille. Okay. All right. I have been trying to pay attention to how you were the questions, but unfortunately I had not heard of, I've, I've heard yeah. of Camille Paglia, but I did not recognize either of her book titles. So that was never going to come to me, but uh, yeah, but excellent question. Um, I like when there's yeah. those little bits of wordplay in there. And and it, it will help if you eventually happen to stumble upon, like, the, the two authors that I've heard. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I might, might have guessed Camille with my lucky Rebecca strategy, but probably not. All right. The next question starts with Nolan. In the recently aired Celebrity Alumni Tournament of University Challenge, so the one that aired over this winter, which retired pop star and classically trained musician who has since moved into a quite different line of work demonstrated that he is very much an above-average quizzer. I'll accept either his name or the name of the group he was in, which back in 1986 had the UK's biggest-selling single of the year. Oh, great. I get religion, then I get music. Is The next one I'm getting is going to start with, like, carpentry, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, that would tie in with religion. Good time to music, too, if you're talking about the carpenters. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, again, this is one that I am in my weak spot here. I'm just going to guess UB40 and move on to the next person. <laughs> All right, next is James. Uh, so re- remember what, what I said about 1970s to 1990s uh, television is even worse for music. Um, <laughs> so it's not going to be any of those uh, 90s boy bands that I was about to, to guess when they when you said it was uh, they had the best single in like 1980 something. I, I have literally nothing. I, I do not know. Um, boys to men, although they're way too late for that. And, um, and also not British. But <laughs> at know, least we're, I guess the we're, British fan that was wrong. Point, they're they're part of that movement. To land in a decade of, of time. Forget about where on the planet we land. Um, <laughs> yeah, is, is UB40 British? I not, didn't know that, but. Uh, all right. I, I'm not sure. I was going to say that uh, the British version of Boys to Men is part of that movement, <laughs> New Union Jack Swing. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. So we're on uh, David now. Okay. So you said, you said there were two possible answers. Can you please repeat what the what the options were? So basically, either like the name of the man who who just appeared on uh, University Challenge and represented his team well, or the group with which he uh, had the UK's biggest selling single of 1986. Okay, so yeah, I, I have a fondness for a few Brit pop bands, but I overall don't know very much about Brit pop. Um, so I'm kind of floundering here. I was trying to think if maybe one of those, you know, the the way you phrase that he was the band he was affiliated with 1986 single, maybe it was like not like a band he performed with regularly or a group he performed with regularly. Maybe it was like one of those charity singles like Live Aid, the USA for Africa type thing, Band Aid. But I would have thought those would be, I think that wasn't 1986, maybe a little earlier. And even if it was, I don't remember the name of the actual group, what they called themselves. I just know that like Band Aid was part of the, organization so um so yeah so uh i'll uh won't belabor it any further uh i'll pick a 19 i think is a 1980s brit pop star that i think was part of a band uh and i'll say boy george i think he was in culture club but he's certainly his name you know he's well known at, at least by by his name not just as a member of the band so i'll lock in with boy george all right so uh one thing i've discovered is that there's kind of a bimodal distribution among my contestant pool in terms of knowledge of british television and british television personalities so in past episodes we've had people the last episode actually I think all three contestants were very conversant in British TV and could name a number of people, very familiar faces on British TV who weren't known in the U.S. Uh, this episode, I suspect we're kind of at the other end. So this particular man has actually made quite a few appearances on British TV, presenting his own programs, a celebrity contestant or panelist on, you know, Have I Got News For You and Only Connect and, and many other shows like that. And he's very instantly recognizable from his caller because he has left the world of music and become an Anglican priest. And the so, he gen- <laughs> yes, he's generally known as the Reverend Richard Coles. But back in the 80s, he and Jimmy Somerville of Bronski Beat formed a duo uh, named for a French revolutionary movement called the Communards. And they had a surprising pop success with a cover of a song that in the U.S. is associated with a Motown artist named Thelma Houston, but in the U.K. was a huge selling in their cover, and it's called Don't Leave Me This Way. So the Reverend Richard Coles or the Communards would have been acceptable answers. Uh, All right. 
by an order of magnitude, the, the most obscure uh, British show presenter that I know is Victoria Corbin Mitchell, and that's only because I watch Only Connect. Right. So she did come up indirectly in the previous episode where her husband, David Mitchell, was the answer to a question. Okay. All right. So now one last cycle of these questions before we get to your specialist one. So each of you will be in first position for one more of these. So we'll start with James. What surname is shared by three of the last five prime ministers of Denmark, none of whom are related to the others? Hmm. Well, considering I have no knowledge of Danish prime ministers, we're going to have to go to a different angle for this. It isn't uh, Christian Anderson. He's he's Danish, right? So I'm going to go with Anderson. All right. Guessing names that end in Sen is always a tactic for Denmark. a good guess, but not correct. David? Yeah, so the first thing that came to mind when you said the PMs of Denmark was Borgen, but I think that's because that's a TV show about a fictional prime minister, and it may even be Denmark, and maybe it's not a different Scandinavian country. But either way, I, I'm pretty sure that's entirely fictional, so that wouldn't be right. Damn. So uh, there's a person I used to co-host trivia with is actually in town this weekend after having moved to Denmark a year ago. We're going to kind of have a little reunion and host again uh, at a local bar this week. And I wish I had asked her more about... Danish politics, because that would have been very helpful right now. I'm sure she'd know it in a heartbeat, but I'm trying to like replay any conversations we've had. Uh, nothing's coming to mind. I'm just going to have to uh, do what uh, James did and just pick another random Scandinavian name. I'll say Carlton. All right. Decent uh, guessing strategy, but not correct. Nolan? Yeah, I had Carlson Anderson written down. <laughs> my last one, Lucky Yodson. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So of the last five prime ministers of Denmark, two of them have been women. Pella Thorning-Schmidt, who had a bit of a mini scandal taking a, a selfie at Nelson Mandela's memorial service. Uh, and the current... Oh. Uh, yeah, the current Prime Minister, Meta Fredriksson, who, who's also the lead singer of Roxette. Or, well, actually, I may need to fact-check that one. But um, the last three male Prime Ministers of Denmark, none of them related to each other and coming from two different political parties, they all shared the surname Rasmussen. Rasmussen, okay. So, next, coming to David. I got schooled. The unlikely story of how a moonlighting movie maker learned the five keys to closing America's education gap is the 2013 nonfiction book in which what Oscar-nominated director quite sincerely lays out a serious approach to fixing the U.S. public education system. Okay, I think I have heard of this. I'm just trying to make sure, like, uh, there's a name that immediately popped into mind. I'm trying to remember if they got an Oscar nomination. I I feel pretty good about this, so if I get it wrong, it will be quite a twist, because I think the answer is M. Night Shyamalan. I think he was nominated for The Sixth Sense, so that would fit the that would fit the category you said the book was 2013 not the oscar nomination right just making sure correct okay so yeah because if it was the oscar that wouldn't line up chronologically but yes so i'm gonna i will lock in with m night Shyamalan. all right and there is no twist ending here you have the correct answer at the points awesome all right and the last one going starting with nolan topical question a few weeks ago mariah carey's all i want for christmas is you finally completed its 25 year journey to the number one spot on the U.S. pop charts. This makes it only the second Christmas song to top the Billboard Hot 100. Way back in 1958, what was the first? Oh my god. 
God, I just listened to the Hit Parade episode about this, too. Oh, my God. Oh, I deserve to listen to Dominic the Donkey on an eight-hour loop while taking shots of Malort for this. Um, <laughs> no one ever deserves to take shots of Malort. <laughs> hey, hashtag it isn't gasoline. It's damn close. <laughs> yes, Actually, I guess that is what it should taste like. <laughs> Actually, I found one thing that it... I took the uh, Harry Potter jelly beans and I tried the vomit one and I just grabbed the Malort and chugged it down. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thing that Malort has made taste better. Okay, um, so... What was yeah? What Christmas song was it? I really I'm hating myself because I listened to the whole episode about this too. I'm gonna go with um White Christmas, but probably wrong. All right, yeah. I mean, no, that is the the best selling uh, song of all time, but uh, not the answer to this question. We'll go to James next. Yeah, I mean that. It was not not only the, the best-selling one of all time, but it was also that year was roughly in range of when, like, Holiday Hotel would have come out and become a thing. So that that was definitely my, my best guess, so I'm going to have to come up with another one. What Christmas song would have oh. first showed up in 19... 19- hmm. That is around the time that rock and roll is starting. How about Jingle Bell Rock? That is a, a very good guess, and right from the, the right time period, and it definitely is a song that that keeps popping up now that Billboard has changed methodology a bit. Uh, old Christmas songs do tend to pop up in the top 10 or so around this time of year. And so Jingle Bell Rock has made multiple appearances in the top 10, I believe, but it has but not. not. All right. So thank you for taking Jingle Bell Rock off the table. I appreciate yeah, that. <laughs> So the uh, I'm trying to remember if Richie Valens ever released a version of Feliz Navidad that might have been popular because like that was like that was like you know he was popular from like 57 to 59 uh, and that would have been right in that sweet spot. Um, but I never saw the movie La Bamba. If I did, maybe I would remember whether or not he ever. I, I think I'm thinking of I might be thinking of someone else. Maybe like there's there's definitely a famous version of Feliz Navidad, but it just doesn't doesn't feel right. But so those of you who remember about 15 minutes ago or so when I mentioned going to a, a Jewish day school can infer that I did not grow up listening to many Christmas songs, so I don't have a lot to draw from. Uh, I think I'm just. I wonder if it's just any sort of traditional Christmas carols that might have been. All right, I'm just going to pick a Christmas carol. I remember in the 70s, there was that famous uh, cover of Little Drummer Boy by David Bowie and Bing Crosby. Maybe Bing Crosby had a solo version in the 50s that was popular. So I'll say a Little Drummer Boy. All right. So I saw uh, Noel kind of grab your head after you, you made your guess. I Did you remembered look? exactly what it was. It was Alvin and the Chipmunks Christmas song. It's the no! Oh, no. no. So, uh, yeah, young young man, uh, Armenian-American, uh, trying to dip his toe in Chopin's a few different ways. He played a songwriter in Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window. He and his first cousin, William Saroyan, who was a Pulitzer-winning playwright, co-wrote a song for Rosemary Clooney that was a number one hit. But as an artist, he adopted a less ethnic name. His, his original name was Ross Bagdasarian. As an artist, he took the name David Seville and tried a few different things until he hit upon uh, this wonderful gimmick of Alvin, Simon, and Theodore the Chipmunks. And their first big success, the Chipmunk song, parentheses, Christmas Don't Be Late, was until recently the only Christmas song to hit number one on the U.S. charts. Well, the only song worse than Dominic the Donkey. <laughs> Very I'm, interesting. I'm Can I go take a shot of Belort now? Of that, that is the song because I never would have guessed that it came out in 1950. Or before that. Like, I, I thought it was much more recent. 
Yeah, I think his son, uh, David Seville Jr., kind of continued the, the Chipmunks franchise, so they became more associated with the later time period, but they do date yeah. back to the 50s. I'm going to bang my head on the wall now. Punishment. <laughs> 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 All right, so at the end of that round, I believe we have James 0.0, David 0.3, and Nolan 0.0. A real cheese melter. Hi, this is Future Yogesh, breaking in with a compensated announcement from our friends at NAQT, the National Quiz Bowl Organization. They've set up a Quiz Bowl-style online game called Buzzword that you can play from the comfort of your own internet-connected device. And between Thursday, June 11th, and Tuesday, June 16th, there's going to be a special movie-themed game that you can compete in. The questions are just like Quiz Bowl toss-up questions, where the clues go from hard to easy and you get more points the earlier you interrupt with the correct answer, except these questions are going to be 100% about film, and also they'll be read by Ken Jennings. It's a solo event that costs $5 to play, and if you'd like to participate, just sign up at naqt.com go slash buzzword underscore film. That's naqt.com slash go slash b-u-z-z-w-o-r-d underscore f-i-l-m. I'll also put the link in the Recreational Thinking Facebook group. And please use that link so they know you were referred by me. You can play anytime you have a spare hour or so between Thursday, June 11th and Tuesday, June 16th. Thanks. So now we'll, we'll begin the main game, and now the rules will be a bit different. At this point, I, I usually make a self-deprecating remark about not being good at calibration. I've gotten a little better over the last five episodes, but I'll still apologize in advance for inevitable calibration errors. But this round is intended to be the easiest questions of the game, so it's called the not-so-hard round. So in this round, like all the successive ones, each of you will get three specialist questions related to your categories. The standard caveat applies. It's not intended to be a fair or comprehensive test of your knowledge of the categories. It may relate directly or obliquely. To keep everyone on their toes, I won't reveal the categories, at least not until they become evident. So for each of your specialist questions, before you can answer, your opponents get to work together to try and steal the points from you. You only get a chance to answer for points if your opponents miss. Sometimes, especially in later rounds, I might pass the question to you without telling you if your opponents got it wrong. In those cases, even if you think they got it right, you should probably, for game theory purposes, just answer as though they got it wrong, because otherwise you're never going to get points. There was a contestant in the last episode who didn't obey that and ended up losing points as a result. And now after listener suggestions and some discussions with contestants, we've added in a feature of the game I call the bonus questions. These are occasional extra questions that can be given to people whose questions get stolen from them. So far they haven't shifted the outcome of any games, but they've given people who get stolen from a, a chance to show off some knowledge and given listeners a few more questions to enjoy. So looks like they're here to stay as a feature of the game, but remember that they will only go with some questions are kind of sprinkled in quasi-randomly, so not every question has an associated bonus. Bonuses will relate to the question, but they won't always fit in the same category or be at the same level of difficulty. All right, so these questions, again, being not all that hard, will be worth two points for a steal. One as a specialist, and bonuses, if they appear, will be worth one point as well. And for the rest of the game, if two will confer to steal points, the points will go to both of them even if only one knew the answer. So again, a little bit of element of luck plays into the scoring as well. And so the first question, since we start with James in first position, this first question will be directed at David and Nolan trying to steal from James. Yeah. All right, we'll start with hopefully a relatively easy one. During his playing days, 
current Mets manager, Carlos Beltran, was known for his strong hitting in the postseason, earning him such nicknames as the new Mr. October, Mr. October Jr., and Senior Octubre, all of which pay homage to what player from an earlier generation? Okay, Nolan, I'm not, I don't follow a lot of baseball, but I am pretty sure I've heard of the original Mr. October that is Reggie Jackson, right? That's what I had to. Okay, so I guess there's nothing else to discuss. I can't think of any any reasonable alternatives. Uh, you okay? We lock in with Jackson. Thumbs up. All right, All right, let's do it. Locked in Reggie Jackson, and that, as you are no doubt unsurprised to learn, is correct. It, yeah. <laughs> All right, so two points to David and Nolan. And the next question goes to James and Nolan trying to steal from David. Charles Baker, best known for depicting Skinny Pete in Breaking Bad, is actually a talented pianist and got to show this off in a scene in which Skinny Pete uses a keyboard to play the solfeggiato in C minor, composed in 1766 by a man with what surname? I mean, 1756. It's uh, 1766. Oh, thank you. Okay, 1766. Either way, it's... That is around the right period of time for all of the box to be active. And certainly if you're asking for only the surname, that would be where I would go. Yeah, I was going to say my classical music score is about 250 right now. So I know there are like 300 composers with the last name Bach. They're the classic (laughs) of the Duggars, so... Yeah, um, we're. I guess I think we're we're gonna go with Bach. I I've got no, I've got nothing to fight you with, so let's go with Bach. Yeah. All right. So yes, that piece was composed by Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach. Son yeah. Of the, I, I of knew the it wasn't gonna be Johann Sebastian Bach, but I there were several <laughs> other siblings and relatives to to go with. Yeah, I didn't know uh, that one for sure, but I was certainly leaning towards the Bach family. That was a very funny scene. I always appreciate Breaking Bad for their uh, sprinkling in some humor. It's between the really heavy stuff, the juxtaposition of Skinny Pete beautifully playing that piece with uh, his uh, meth partner in Crime Badger trying to strum along on electric guitar and failing quite miserably. It was uh, very enjoyable. But then I'm a self-professed super fan of the show, so I'm much more prone to like it. (laughs) That's why Yogesh is asking questions about it. All right, so we'll give you a bonus on that one. So as you mentioned, Skinny Pete's kind of part of a duo with Badger. The actor who played Badger has also been seen in, in recurring roles on Mom, on uh, NCIS, and that actor shares his name with a contestant on the previous episode of this podcast. What is that name? Oh, oh dear. Yeah, I guess they do share a name. So this is this is for me to answer alone, right? Yes. Just, okay. Um, yeah, that's right. I, I did listen to, although maybe he's been on two episodes because... But yeah, but uh, and I've uh, I'm stuttering a bit here. Uh, what I'm trying to say is is that I know both avenues of this question. Um, <laughs> the actor who plays Badger, his name is Matt Jones. I think he might be credited with the middle initial because Matt Jones is a relatively common name. But then Matt Jones, uh, I've met uh, a couple times at the uh, American Crossword Puzzle Tournament that's held every year in uh, either New York or the New York metro area. And yeah, I think he was, yeah, I, I listened to the episode of this podcast where he, one of his subjects was crossword puzzles. So that's a long way to go just to give my answer of Matt Jones. And of course, you know, if you had to guess, Jones is probably the second best thing to guess as well. But anyway, the uh, yeah, so that is correct for David, but uh, Nolan having two steals is still in first place at this point. So this next question goes to David and James trying to steal from Nolan. Ooh boy. All right. So this is a format in previous episodes I've called Solve for X. It has nothing to do with algebra. It basically means yeah. that I've taken... <laughs> 
I've taken a quote and I have removed a certain word or phrase and replaced it with X and it's your job to fill in what X is in that quote. Mm-hmm. All right? So, a recipe for vegan gluten-free red velvet cake on the vegan cooking blog Blissful Basil or Basil says, quote, X are the magical touch in this moist, chocolatey, almost brownie-like vegan cake. But other than the vibrant red hue and rich texture they lend, you'll never know they're there. What kind of vegetables are X? I mean, for, for that red color and texture, probably beets, right? Uh, that was my first thought as well. Um, I'm trying to think of other red or purple vegetables that could give that color. Um, I mean... I mean, I, I, I suppose eggplant might be like might have a better texture than a beet would, but it certainly wouldn't give you the the red velvet sort of color. Yeah, because red velvet is a much uh, it's a it's a it's relatively a unique shade. Yeah, red thing. like it's yeah. You're, I'm you're happy. Certainly not putting like tomatoes or whatever or or red bell peppers in a cake. Um, Doesn't seem like it, but with all the molecular gastronomy that goes on these days, crazier things yeah. have happened. But I'm happy to yes. go with here. I mean, the, the the fact that we're talking about making a vegan red velvet cake means that they've gone too far. But um, <laughs> vegan and gluten good point. and gluten free, yes. Um, but yeah, yeah, but I'm happy I, to I go think, with your first instincts. All right, I'm happy to lock in with that. Yeah. All right, so you're locking in beet. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, beet or beetroot is yes traditionally the source of the red velvet coloring in red velvet cake. So that is correct. And a bonus also on red velvet cake for Nolan. What term is used in heraldry for a tincture consisting of black shapes on a white background modeled on the fur of a certain type of weasel? It also refers to a type of icing often applied to red velvet cake. Ooh, I mean, I guess ermine. No. Uh. Ooh, it's either ermine or carmine. Arg. Um. Carmine? Which one are you locking in? Carmine. So, uh, carmine, as I think David might be aware, is a kind of red dye. Oh. Uh, the, the icing on red velvet cake is, of course, white, and it matches kind of the fur of the stoat, which is often okay. sold. Its fur is often sold under a different name, that name being ermine. So, ah. <laughs> I guess in the interest of not spoiling one of my other categories, I shouldn't say why I am familiar with carmine, right? Mm. <laughs> Although that, well, it may come up at, at some point later, but uh, yeah, for now, that's fine. So yes, the, the heraldry term, the type of weasel, the icing, and I believe a kind of wasp, they all share the name Ermine. So Nolan did not get that bonus and remains tied with James. So now, David and Nolan trying to steal from James. A certain astronomical object in the constellation Boetes is noted by astrophysicists for apparently arising from a white dwarf star with a mass exceeding the Chandrasekhar limit. But among pop culture trivia writers, that object is primarily noted for carrying what nickname inspired by a 1996 rock anthem. Alright, so I'm, I'm sorry, I lost track. I'm, am I working with James this or with is, Nolan on this? This is my topic, so you're not working with him. Okay, um, so so Nolan, not a lot's coming to mind. We've got a 1996 rock anthem, uh, an astronomical object in the constellation Boates, or in that region, B-O-O-T-E-S, right? Right. Okay. Um, yeah, nobody has ever pronounced that correctly, and I don't think they ever will. Um, <laughs> 
All right. So, Nolan, any any thoughts from the from the music perspective? I know you said music wasn't your thing, but uh, yeah. I'm assuming this is coming. Music and a... astronomical objects together are like okay. Again, my weaknesses. So I'm um, hoping this at least if it's if it's something that uh, pop culture trivia writers are fans of, I'm hoping it's come up in a trivia question that at least one of us has heard of before. So I'm just trying to think of 1990s rock. Um, 1996 in music. Right now, all I can think of is the Macarena. I wouldn't quite call that rock. <laughs> That's better than anything I have, but it's obviously Uh, not going to be right. Yeah, I'm just at least trying to think of maybe there's, I mean, I'd like to think that this is going to have some sort of astronomical or celestial term, like the the name of the song might have, uh, you know, some sort of astronomical term in it. Um, (laughs) You know, maybe something, maybe the name of a planet, Um, but uh, I'm drawing a a blank here. Uh, Yogesh, did you say that the object shares a name with the title of the rock anthem or it was inspired by the rock anthem? I just said inspired by. Okay, so it could be a lyric or the name of the the band that the rock anthem is associated with. I'm trying to think of bands with, I think there's the Mars Volta, but I'd never heard of, I I don't even know if they're rock. That's just a a 30 seconds to Mars. Um, what other uh, comets, meteors? Uh, I can't even think of anything that that even feels plausible. So I'm just I'm trying to think of just any important astronomical objects, any sort of nebulas, pulsars, quasars, black holes. Uh, and you want you'll guess the name of the object, not the type of object it is, right? That's right. Yes. Okay. So even just guess like I guess like black hole wouldn't even be close because we need the name of the black hole if that's what it was. And there probably isn't going to be a black hole in a constellation. I don't think that's how astronomy works. I'm, not, I'm, I'm no expert. Can confirm. <laughs> uh, um, uh, Nolan, do you by chance know what the what boatis means, like in the constellation, like what the if that's a Greek or Latin word, what that means? That might be a clue that could be helpful. No. Okay. It probably doesn't mean boot. That would be too easy. Ah, <laughs> uh, um, yeah. Uh, 1996 was also around the year when ha- we could see Hale Bop, but the fact that we could see it means it's close. To, it was close to Earth, not in uh, you know another star system hail bop dun 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 hail bop hey (laughs) (laughs) well i still feel like i'm the dumbest person in the entire world during this episode but at least that makes makes two of us to feel that way (laughs) but you know what i i I can appreciate that you came with the connection that combines mid-90s pop music with astronomy in, in some way. And given that we're kind of floundering here, I think we've used up enough time. Uh, we can just lock in with, uh, well, uh, I'm just, you know, we'll just say hail bop and uh, get it over with. Put us, put ourselves out of our misery. Yeah. Same thing, Nolan. Yeah. 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 Good, good lateral thinking there with the connection. And I think I looked up just now, I think the, the name of that constellation means herdsman or plowman. I think it's called yeah. the herd. Anyway, I'll just pass this over to James. Would it help if, you guys knew you were in an oasis oh the, the champagne, champagne supernova, supernova. <laughs> oh, uh, okay yeah uh, the object technically known as sn2003 fg but more popularly known especially among people like me trying to fashion these facts and yeah. questions as the champagne supernova god i i was uh, i i wanted to flex i wanted to give the sn2003 whatever but i couldn't remember what the last two uh letters were um <laughs> it's okay a still very important impressive knowledge i would have had to you know go through a thousand guesses of 90s songs before i ever hit upon that one true um yeah despite how you may feel this is actually one of the higher scoring episodes so far and james (laughs) just pushed himself into the lead and now he and nolan will get a chance to steal from david 
So considering Steven Soderbergh's passionate cinephilia, it is extremely likely that the first names of the Malloy brothers in the Oceans trilogy, Virgil and Turk, are an intentional homage to which classic film? Ooh. Virgil and Turk. Um, I, Let's, I mean, we can guess. I mean, there are plenty of classic films we can, we can just randomly guess, but... I know. Like, a similar sort of film would be, like, The Sting. That's definitely a classic film. Took place in a casino. I know zero characters from it, um, so that this might Let's be... Let's try that. Different. Let's try that. Okay. I don't have anything sting. better. All right, so you're locking in The Sting? Yeah. All right. That, again, maybe a different one of David's interests. Uh, but anyway, David. Um, yeah, guys, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but The Sting... Thing may have come out the same year as what I think the correct answer is. I am pretty sure that re- Virgil and Turk refers to the character Virgil the Turk Salazzo, who was killed by Michael Corleone in the restaurant where he gets the gun from the bathroom in The Godfather. I'm just, yeah. before I lock in, I just want to make sure I'm not getting parts one and two mixed up. I'm pretty sure it was the first one, so I will lock in with The Godfather. The Sting actually won Best Picture the year after The Godfather, so they came oh, out. Oh, they were a year apart. They came out in successive years, but yes, the character of Virgil the Turk Salazzo, nemesis of Vito Corleone, has has him put in the hospital and is then gunned down by Michael in the restaurant. And yes, The Godfather is the correct answer. And David that, Namu. That, that was going to be my random guess for a classic film, so I tried to get a little too cute. Um. <laughs> Remember, we're still in the not-all-that-hard round, so so random guessing still has to pay off here. All right, so now David and James trying to steal from Nolan. Thanks to a long-standing tradition of moral guardianship, censoring anything relating to ninjas in children's programming, the animated series that produced 193 episodes between 1987 and 1996 was, during its initial run, and still until fairly recently, known in the UK and Ireland as Teenage Mutant What? Turtles. What? Ooh, interesting. What? Yeah, I had no idea. <laughs> Teenage I, I, Mutant Warrior Turtles? Teenage Mutant uh, Fighter I mean, Turtles? My first thought was Samurai, just because that way, mm. when one of them is holding the katana, it wouldn't be as much of a stretch. Um, yeah. But I'm wondering if, I mean, if there was some, some you know, censor, some censor had a concern with ninjas, might that also apply to Samurai? Maybe it wouldn't because Samurai had a code of honor, and I don't know if yeah, had a similar I, code. I feel like the, the I, I feel like the sort of censor that would have an issue with Ninja would also have an issue with Samurai. Okay. Because neither of them like have anything actually wrong with them. Um, yeah, that's true. But I, I uh, mean, I still do like Samurai's as an answer, though. Like it's definitely a related Japanese yeah. like fighter person word. Yeah, um, although it is. Like, so in the theme song, because they have the theme song, and the fact that each word has two syllables is very useful for the meter of the theme. Yeah. They would have had to record it. Uh, and so maybe we should be looking for something that has the same number of syllables. Um, warrior could have two syllables if you pronounce it the right, in a, in a the particular yeah. way. Um, but it's still kind of, and also, if they're re-recording it for the UK only, it was probably done with a British accent. That's something else we should consider. Mm-hmm. I mean, I so the the reason I went with fighter in the first place is that I, I played a bunch of like JRPGs in the 90s, and one of the classes they always had was fighter. 
I mean, it wasn't, you know, granted the the same sort of thing that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were. Like, they, they weren't ever the ones with weapons. They were the ones who always fought with their fists. But it's a two-syllable thing. It means roughly the same. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if it could be also fighting turtles instead. Because just, again, to my ears, fighter turtles seems kind of odd. Whereas fighting yeah. turtles, uh, using it as an adjective almost, uh, mm-hmm. seems better. But... But again, this is this is all, you know, uh, yeah. doing that thing where the more you say something, the more it feels like it goes from a random guess, something you have confidence in for no yeah. discernible reason. So I don't want to make it seem like I'm actually leaning towards that for any logical yeah. I don't I don't have any reason to pick any any of the two syllable things we have over any others. But I do I do think that it does have to fit in the theme song, like like you said, because they're they're certainly not going to recompose yeah. an entire theme song for the UK. Here's a thought. What if they just called it Teenage Mutant Pizza Turtles because they're always eating pizza? <laughs> oh my god, that because would be amazing. Um, what if their concern wasn't ju- like what if it was just about ninjas being too violent and any attempts to change it to like a samurai, a warrior? Yeah, you know, it's all just uh, like, well, it's too violent. But if you be... focus on the pizza, and also, I mean, that would be a much more hilarious answer. Like it'd be a great I, a, that that would elevate this we, question to the next level if that was the right. We, answer. we are we are now we are now at the point where I would be more mad if the answer was pizza and we didn't say it than if it was any of the reasonable things that we came up with and it was that um okay um so you want to lock in with pizza yeah. <laughs> okay i think we're locking in with pizza <laughs> All right, awesome. i enjoyed the process of of getting to that answer but uh, now i'll pass it over to nolan no so in the in the cartoon they had restrictions on violence and they had to reanimate it. Michelangelo didn't have nunchucks in the British version. He had some kind of like grappling hook thing. And Ninja was not allowed. It was called Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. Ah. Yeah. So the yeah, two syllable thing was, was right. But yes, they were just generically the Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. Uh, yeah. That is okay. so much more lame than the Teenage Mutant. <laughs> yeah. starts coming out October. So. Yeah. And then do you, do you know, Nolan, who wrote the theme song for that show? Uh, hold on. It was Shuki Levy, was it? So it was uh, written by someone who who would be fairly rich even if he didn't have royalties from that still pouring in. And in fact, a, a show he created was mentioned a little earlier in this podcast. His name is Chuck Lorre. Whoa! Uh, wow. <laughs> uh, that's well, a great fact. I, I gotta write that down. <laughs> yeah. All right. So that again, that that would have come up in your bonus if you had needed one, which you did not. So you got the point on that. And now next one, we're entering the last cycle in this round and David and Nolan to steal from James. Throughout its run, the NBC sitcom Scrubs credited three medical advisors, Dr. Jonathan Doris, Dr. Dolly Clock and a prominent Manhattan plastic surgeon with what surname? Hmm. Nolan, any any thoughts? Um, no, I have okay. no idea whatsoever what the. I'm trying to think of just any famous plastic surgeons. Like I'm trying to think if there's like a a, a media personality like like if Doctor Oz used to be a plastic surgeon before he got his show. Um, it doesn't feel right. I don't want to go. But like I'm just trying to think of you know the thing is like all the doctors I can think of on TV like Doctor yeah. Oz, Sanjay Gupta, uh, Doctor Phil. Like they're known for having some degree of experience 
pun intended, uh, in <laughs> the field they talk about on the show, was plastic surgery. Mehmet Oz was a cardiothoracic surgeon. Bra has a PhD in um, psychology, but not an MD. Okay. So he's unlikely to have been a medical advisor. Sanjay Gupta, though, I don't know what his area of medicine was. Okay. It could be we, anything. Can, we can table that for now. Now I'm also trying to think, are there any people, like doctors that became famous for reasons besides their medical knowledge? Like if there was a famous doctor that consulted in the OJ trial in the 90s and then parlayed that into a career in show business. Um, just, just keep saying last names and eventually you'll you'll get to the correct one, maybe. <laughs> That's right. Um, All right. Yogesh, did you say it was a you said a New York plastic surgeon? Was that part? Manhattan, as in Manhattan, New York? Okay, so I think if anybody, if it is like a media personality, anyone that has like a kind of stereotypical New York accent that I can picture talking about being a doctor, um, I don't know. Oh, I wonder if it's Dr. I'm pretty sure it's wrong, but at least it's something. Dr. Drew would have first become famous around the time that Strubs came out. However, I'm pretty sure he's not a plastic surgeon. I think he deals with, like, because he has, like, the celebrity rehab. I think he deals more with um, uh, his, addicts. His, and His, like, his he, specialty is addiction medicine. I know that. Yeah, so, so that's probably not it. Um, but I just wanted to run it by you in case you thought otherwise but it's okay so it sounds like still sanjay gupta is our best like famous doctor we can think of to avoid uh just to avoid being sexist i mean <laughs> the classic example the doctor was a woman are there any famous <laughs> female doctors that we're forgetting it, it like in, in I mean, media i feel like plastic surgeons are always portrayed as men so i don't yeah, but i don't want to discount say, I, think, I think part of this thing is that i don't think it's the gender we might want to worry about. We may just want to consider if um, we would want, I mean, maybe not gender so much as ethnicity. So if we guess like a common ethnic surname like Lee or Kim, Patel, Gupta, something like that, and just go with the last name. Huh. Actually, wait, uh, This the timeline might not work out, but Dr. Ken, Ken Jong. He certainly has comedy chops and is a is a Ooh, legitimate MD. No, he no his is a he did an internal medicine residency in New Orleans. He is not okay. All right, Earth, but we could we could that? try for um. Yeah, are you sure this isn't your area of expertise, Nolan? I just happen to know what type of doctor a lot of them are, but um. All right, yeah, and also I yeah it's. I mean, we're, I get, we're going to be going for a Lucky Johnson or a Lucky Smith or a Lucky Patel or something like that. I mean, I would rather go with a doctor that we actually know is a personality as opposed to a, a random name guest. Since we haven't eliminated Sanjay Gupta, I would rather go with that than just pick a name. Okay, let's go with Sanjay um, Gupta then. Okay, or let's that's just, a let's, just go, let's go with Gupta, just in case there's a different Gupta who is the, um, <laughs> since that okay. is a very common Indian surname, it could be a different Gupta who was the um, advisor on the show. All right, good point. We'll lock in Gupta. All right, and the question did ask just for a surname, um, and that is extremely impressive uh, knowledge of medical specializations, <laughs> Nolan. <laughs> Thank yes. You. Maybe that should have been your one of your categories, but... Uh, yeah. All right, James. So as amusing as that that was to watch, I think you went entirely down the wrong lane. And that's because those two doctors they mentioned, uh, John Doran became J.D. Dorian, the, the main character on the show. Dolly Clock became Dr. Molly Clock, who is also on the show. So I'm thinking that this, even though I don't know who this person is, they have to share a surname presumably with one of the the actors or one of the characters on the show you said it was a plastic surgeon i don't remember if there was a specific 
plastic surgeon on the show, but by far the most important surgeon on the show, his last name was Turk. So I'm going to go with that. Yeah, I mean, Jay, I, I, I had this whole explanation of, of how, uh, you know, David Nolan can, they, they, so on the Breaking Bad question, you noticed that I was asking for a surname. And so you, you figured out the surname was significant, more, more famous than the person itself. Similarly here, the, the fact I was asking for a surname maybe should have tipped you off that it's the name rather than the person who's famous. The person is probably only known if you're a rich Manhattan person looking for facial plastic surgery. But um, the surname, on the other hand, is noteworthy, right? The main character on Scrubs, last name of Dorian, uh, driving from Dr. Jonathan Doris, probably the secondary protagonist. His last name on the show was Turk, driving from John B. Turk, the third of the three mm. medical all right. so, nice job. All right. So this, okay, next one goes to James and Nolan trying to steal from David. This is another uh, solve for X or fill in the X here. And I'll give you a somewhat long quote. And it was, this was done as background for a 2006 documentary on water usage by the PBS affiliate KUED that I took from the PBS Utah website. This is a part of their interview with a man named Jamie Cruz, who is the MGM Mirage Director of Energy and Environmental Services, or at least was at the time. Here's the quote. The Bellagio fountains are mostly using well water that exists beneath the Bellagio landscape. That well water was pre used previously to maintain a X that previously existed there. The beauty of that is that the current water use from the artificial lake containing the fountains represents only two-thirds of the water that was used before when the X existed, so in reality the Bellagio uses less water than the X that used to be there before. What is X? What on earth? Um, well, so let's let think of what's awful is I'm going to Las Vegas in like a month. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I feel like going to Las Vegas about a decade ago or two decades ago might have been the helpful thing, not in the future. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I was just there like a couple years ago. Um, but we're, basically what we're trying to think of is a sort of thing that would be not out of place on the Las Vegas Strip would use a shitload of water that is not a fountain. Well, I think I... Um, so what used a lot of water? Golf courses, gardens, and swimming mm -hmm. pools. Let's go with garden. I think that's... Uh, maybe. Um, so yeah, I'm, I, golf courses are a well-known water sink, but I don't, I don't think that there the Bellagio is right in the middle of the strip, so you're not going to have enough yeah. room for a golf course there. Yeah, the, the, but I think I recall something about there formerly being a garden at the Bellagio. Maybe I'm just making okay. that up. Okay, I mean, gardens also use a lot of water. I I really don't have anything in mind myself, so I like garden. Let's let's go. Okay, let's, go let's lock in garden. All right, lock in garden. Right. David. Um, so I'm a. Uh drawing a blank on this. Yogesh, can you read me the first part again, kind of the preamble to the quote itself about the documentary? Yeah, this was a, a PBS affiliate KUED did a documentary on water usage in that part of the country, and this was taken from their the background interviews that they posted on the website. So this was an interview with Jamie Cruz, who at the time was the MGM Mirage Director of Energy and Environmental Services. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I, it's, I'm trying to, um, yeah, so I'm trying to think if, so the fact that it it's an MGM Mirage person talking about the Bellagio uh, as opposed to the Bellagio person. That could just be because none, no one from Bellagio wanted to comment on their alleged you know, usage of that much water in a desert. So that might not be 
anything there as far as a hidden hint in the clue, the fact that it's an MGM Mirage person. Um, certainly the Bellagio, the Mirage, the MGM Grand, those are the three casinos that were robbed in the, uh, the movie Ocean's Eleven. So I'm trying to think if there was any dialogue that referenced what used to be there. Like uh, if one of the characters, like Terry or Ruben, was talking about, you know, back in my day, there wasn't this monstrosity here. There was a blank and uh, nothing's coming to mind. Let's see. There was a scene where they were demolishing a casino, but it certainly wasn't the Bellagio. Honestly, I I can't think of any good guesses that haven't already been said by uh, James and Nolan, um, even though I agree that I don't think it's plausible to have a full-size golf course on the strip where the Bellagio is located. I'm not coming up with anything better, so I'll just guess golf course. All right, so um, yeah, this is pretty much a straightforward, just kind of like logic it out from the quote, and James and Nolan hit on it right away and then moved away from it. It's a golf course. <laughs> what? All right. They had a golf <laughs> course on the Las Vegas Strip. I mean, that could have been a golf course that was there 50 years ago, too. Right, yeah. It wasn't always built up the way it is now. Fine. Yeah. Okay. And, um, yeah. I, I think I, I checked on the Mirage thing as well, because I was a little thrown by that, but MGM Mirage is just the corporate parent of the MGM Grand and the Bellagio. They're just all under the same ownership now. Oh, okay. Yeah, like, three quarters yeah. of the um, hotels in that area are under just that whole MGM thing, and you can charge at your room at various resorts there, too, so. Huh. I always assumed that part of the movie was just made up. I didn't realize that all three casinos were actually really owned by the same entity. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But David is illustrating the importance of Routh's first law of quizzing. When there's no penalty for guessing. Always guess. Yeah. All right. And now the last question of this uh, not all that hard round, trying to steal from Nolan. What 1980s Japanimation series that became an international hit was based on a 1965 French children's novel by actress turned author Cécile Aubry? If you're feeling sinister, you can give the original Japanese title, but also accept the more familiar title under which it was dubbed in English and shown on Nickelodeon in the 80s. Nickelodeon? Oh. All right. So I know there's the the uh, that like Babar was a, a French novel that got turned into a children's cartoon, but I don't think it was ever Japanese, and I don't think it was Nickelodeon. Um, no, yeah, and I'm wondering if you just because there was a character in Babar named Celeste, and the Celeste Cecile thing might be making you think of one when they're not actually related. Um, uh, okay. But yeah, and I I've never heard of any sort of Babar animated series. Not I'm, I if you say there's oh, one, no, I'll, I'll believe you. But I'm, there is there is definitely a Babar animated series. I, I okay. had the, the VHS when I was a kid. I don't know where it is now, but it was definitely an animated series. I just don't I don't think anything other than that fits. Okay. I want to keen on the, the sinister part. So that implies that the original Japanese show's title is going to have some reference to evil or bad or to the word left because sinister yeah i I, I was gonna say this we're 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 in advanced trivia mode now we're probably not going for you know one level word connections probably two level word connections so left rather than uh evil or even southpaw but that doesn't feel right for a title because he said the sinister part is the original japanese or like as the the english translation of the original japanese name and nothing is coming to mind um yeah. i'm trying to think of just any french cartoons that might i mean tintin is definitely not by cecile aubrey and it was from before the 60s the smurfs is sort of french i think it's no i think it's belgian so that wouldn't count belgian yeah 
Yeah. Um, um, and Yoga said Japanimation, not anime. So I wonder yeah. if Japanimation is just like a, is that just like a trade name? It's not referring to a specific animation style. It just means it was produced by a company in Japan. Yeah, I, I think that's that's it. I mean, he would have used anime if it was okay. anime, right? I, All right. I, hope so. I mean, I, my understanding um, is Japanimation and anime are basically synonyms, but some people dislike the connotations of the word anime. Okay, I didn't realize that, but um, okay. I so mean, I, uh, I know that a lot of people don't like the connotations of the, the word anime because of weeb <laughs> being a thing, but yeah. All right. Um, well, yeah, I, I do not watch any anime, so I'm like, I'm trying to think of... I, you know, I stuff was in the not 80s. born until 1992, so my extensive uh, Nickelodeon watching as a child will not help me. Um, yeah, uh, I also, um, I was born a few years before you, but I was not watching Nickelodeon until, like, the Nicktoons era. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm trying to think of just, like, any older Japanese cartoons. I think there was Akira was a popular animated movie mm -hmm. or show. I don't even know if it's a movie or a show. I know Taika Waititi sure was going to direct it and it fell through. That it would have to be a, like, quote-unquote Japanese thing. Like, I, it could be something that we would think of as just an, an American, a Nickelodeon TV show that right, right. was made in Japan. Oh, um, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure, like, uh, Miyazaki has, you know, many of his movies have, you know, were inspired by stories from outside sure. Japan. So, yeah. but it's probably going to still have that, again, that Japanese-style animation. So I'm just trying to, you know, okay. picture old animated characters that have that yeah. that Japanese animation look and seeing if anything comes to mind um anything any any TV shows with left or bad or evil or um uh, left of not left of center the okay. left behind doesn't seem like yeah it's show um nope certain certainly not um can you think of any just can you think of any cartoons from that time that are even plausible guesses I this is this is right before I I would have known of any like the things that I'm thinking of are probably from the very early 90s because this is back when I didn't have a good conception of time but like real monsters that could be an evil thing yeah I'm pretty um, sure that was like, uh Klasky Chupo the same company that made yeah, Rugrats yeah. they had the same animation um, style yeah I mean I'm what else it's def it's if anything Rocco's Modern Life would be Australian not Japanese um um, that also might actually be classic too. Yeah, I don't think any of those premiered in the 80s. I think they all premiered in the 90s. Um, yeah. um, all right. Well, uh, okay. At least I, I have a guess, and it seems very wrong, but I know that Astro Boy was is considered a, a classic okay. Japanese animation. That, um, yeah. Certainly, that's that name has nothing to do with the sinister that, part. That, um, that, that, that has if, the benefit of being indisputably Japanese-associated. Um, yeah, um, that's the problem. Like, I can't imagine a French person came up yeah. with that. Um, there's also... Oh, wait. Isn't there a character called Ultraman that's also like I, I when I thought of Astro Boy I thought of Ultraman too. That's not something I've heard of, but don't let that knock you off of it because again, yeah. like t television before I was born is a black hole um, All of right. knowledge. I'll, so I'll I'm gonna try and ask you to move toward an answer now. Just okay. for, um, go, go with Astro Boy. Sure, we'll lock in with Ultraman. <laughs> Right. Uh, okay, you're locking in ultra. You, you can still uh, decide on which one of those you want to lock in on. Go with whatever, whatever you, whatever you decide. Yeah, I'll, I'll lock it. We'll lock in Ultraman. I, I like right. that better than Astro Boy because I feel very strongly that Astro Boy was originally Japanese through and through. So Ultraman is our choice that we lock in with. No one. Well, I'll be honest with you. You've got me completely stumped as to what the answer is. Um, 
I have one guess. I know it was a Japanese-French co-production. The problem is, I don't know if it was an original property or based on something pre-existing, and that's Mysterious Cities of Gold, and I have absolutely no idea if that's right. Now, if that is right, then you have miscalibrated this question for the easiest of the easy, but... (laughs) Yes, I also have never heard of that. I I actually have not heard of it either, but... uh... (laughs) Yeah, if if you're feeling sinister is actually the title of the second studio album by the uh, Scottish musical act Bell and oh, Sebastian, which a cartoon that its founder used to watch as a child, which was itself based on a popular French TV series based on a popular French novel about the relationship between a young boy and a sheepdog. And although the, the Japanese title of the series was Meken Jori, the Japanese pronunciation of Jolie in, is French for kind of pretty, the French word for beautiful Belle shows up in the original title, Belle and Sebastian, or Belle and Sebastien. Yeah, I think that aired for like five minutes in the U.S., and almost nobody in the U.S. has ever heard of that show. So I've, yeah, I, I've heard I, of the I band. Belle and Sebastian just sounds like a really weird it, Disney mashup. I, I think if the band had been included in the answer, I might have been able to pull it, but I'm still 50-50 on that. Good job, Yogesh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the points go to you on this question. <laughs> so before the Nicktoons era, right, they were in, importing cartoons from other countries, uh, Bell and Sebastian from Japan. Another one they imported was Danger Mouse from the UK, which also gave its name to a musical act. Okay, so now at the end of this round, I believe these scores are James 6.0, David 7.3, Nolan 5.0, and we'll now march into the only somewhat hard round where... <laughs> Each steal is worth four points, three points as a specialist, and if there is a bonus, it's worth two points. And we'll start with David and Nolan trying to steal from James. The Transiting Planet and Planetesimal Small Telescope, or TRAPPIST, is a pair of robotic telescopes, one situated at La Silla Observatory in Chile, the other at, forgive me for butchering this pronunciation, Wokaimden Observatory in Morocco in the Atlas Mountains. However, both of those are controlled by a university, or a group at a university located in which nation thousands of miles from either of those places and i'll give you a quick three-word hint astronomers like beer okay uh famous beer and science nation i guess germany would be our first guess right yes but i'm uh i know that the trappist monks and the name of the telescope was trappist i know that uh, there are very few um like quote-unquote official trappist breweries and most of them i believe are in belgium or i think like the least like the trappist monks are originally from Belgium. I also, because the bar I occasionally uh, host pub trivia at, is it's a craft brewery, and uh, many of the people that frequent it are home brewers. I've picked up a lot of stuff about craft beer and microbreweries from them, just that sort of osmosis. And I'm pretty sure I've learned that one of the most, like, considered one of the best beers in the world still being produced today is called, like, West Vleteren 9, and it's produced in Belgium, I'm pretty sure. Even though I agree that I think of scientists associated more with Germany than with Belgium. I just feel like that acronym can't be like Yogesh wouldn't if the answer is not Belgium, Yogesh wouldn't have mentioned the acronym because it's leading so much yeah. more closely to Belgium. Um, yeah, I mean the, I mean if you I mean Belgian scientists you had like Teilhard or De Chardin, so uh, yeah. let's go with Belgium on that. Yeah, I, I would like to uh yeah, let's lock in Belgium. Lock in Belgium, yeah. I think uh Georges Lemaitre, who came up with the Big Bang Theory, yeah. the uh, theory, not the Chuck Lorre sitcom, was from Belgium. Although Johnny Gillespie 
Lecky, one of the stars of that sitcom, was actually born in Belgium as well. And the university in question, the University of Liège or Liège, is in fact located in the home of Trappist Beer, Belgium. Yep. Good job working your way toward it using your non-scientific knowledge. Thank you. And just for some interesting coincidence, uh, I should name the bar that I'm talking about that I uh, host pub trivia at. It actually has that astronomy-themed name, First Magnitude. So a little, little plug Whoa, there. If, okay. Uh, you're ever in the Gainesville, Florida area, check out First well, Magnitude Brewery. I don't right. think I'm ever going to be in the Gainesville, Florida area, but if I am, I will remember this bar. We actually, we have this outreach event at University of Chicago called Astronomy on Tap, where we just go to bars and talk to people about astronomy. And the brewery that we've had it at the last three or four times is called Mars Brewing. So oh, very cool. is that why is that why they call the University of Chicago where fun goes to die? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly why they do that. Yeah. No, I had a coworker. I was trying to tell her about it. I was like, if you, if you ever felt intimidated by the fact that you were the smartest person in the room, go there and you won't. <laughs> <laughs> but the campus yeah. is beautiful and amazing. Yes, campus yeah. is amazing. All right. So uh, I'll throw a bonus to James quickly. Okay. Among the many regions imaged by Trappist is a nebula in the large Magellanic Cloud that contains R136A1, currently the most massive and the most luminous known star. Though that nebula is technically called 30 Doradus, it is better known by the name of what animal that might potentially eat one of your opponent David's categories? Um, oh, what animals? Um, and it's got to be a predator of some sort because it's eating somebody's cat. Oh, so I'm guessing, okay, so probably turtle has got to be it. I, the eagle nebula. That's that's a nebula that I know exists. Yeah, that, that is a one that exists. But uh, this particular one, because of the way it kind of looks like an arthropod with legs spread apart in photographs, it's called the tarantula nebula. Oh, okay. I've at least heard of that. Don't recall that it was 30 Doradus or Trappist or whatever. All right. Okay, so the next I, I switched out the next question to make it maybe a little easier, but let's see how that works. So it's James and Nolan trying to steal from David. Even if Lord Mountbatten hadn't been assassinated by the IRA in 1979, he would almost certainly be dead today. He'd be almost 120 years old. But if he weren't and he were still alive, he could tell you that what is the official state insect of Kentucky. Oh. The, the official state insect of Kentucky? Yes. Yikes. Of course. Um, of course it's my home state. Um, wow. So, hey. the worst part is it's my home state, too. And I don't know the state insect. Um, so, the, the, the person in question was what? Lord Mountbatten? Yes. Yeah, he would have been the, um, he was the great uncle to Prince William, and that's why they yeah. named where their children either George or Lewis. Because that was his first name. Yeah. I well, think it was I, Lewis. I mean, the, the, the royal family is Mountbatten-Windsor, so yeah. it could be related to, to that. Maybe we have cricket just because of the British connection. Oh! There aren't, any, there aren't that many, the problem is there aren't yeah, that many he, crickets. He could Kentucky. very easily be the namesake of some cricket tournament, and then also that just because it happens to be an insect. I, I like that a lot. I don't have anything better, so... Yeah, I mean, I all I could really help here is just naming 
eating random insects, but I don't think we're going to get better than that. Okay. Cricket. You're lucky in cricket? Yep. All right. David? Okay. So uh, I have at one point looked over a list of state insects. So I know some of them, but I don't know all of them for sure. Um, And it's possible there there may be like, you know, every couple years a state decides to newly designate one. So they could have made theirs a cricket since I last checked this list. But I don't think they did. Most states are fairly unoriginal with what they choose for state insects. I would say that like maybe 40 states actually have a state insect. Some of them just don't bother. And of those 40, maybe half of them have like either the honeybee or the monarch butterfly. Um, Then there's a lot of other butterflies and beetles. A couple have the ladybug. But I don't know of any that have a cricket or a grasshopper even as the state insect. Again, it's almost all bees, beetles, and butterflies. Uh, There's, there's, I think, uh, thinking of tarantulas earlier, uh, New Mexico state insect is a tarantula wasp. Um, And there's, uh, see, dragonflies, mantises, but I don't think Kentucky is those. Um, And uh, yeah, so, I mean, the fact that, you know, Lord Mountbatten Windsor is, you know, has got nobility there, monarch, uh, it is believed the monarch butterfly was named after a British monarch. So um, I'm leaning towards that. Um, There's also a a butterfly called the Admiral. Uh, I'm wondering if Lord Mountbatten Windsor was an admiral at some point, had a naval career, but boy, it's really, um, yeah. Well, one of the one of the uh, people on my PhD committee spent most of his career in Kentucky before moving to Florida. He would know this, you know, in a heartbeat. Uh, and so I'm going to tell him to not listen to this podcast so that he doesn't see me <laughs> not know uh, the state insect of the state he's most fond of. Um, I've got two all right. Kentucky friends in uh, in Chicago's Quiz Bowl who I will also tell to not listen to yeah. this podcast. Uh, I'm not, not, not worried about people in Kentucky listening to this podcast, so I'm not going to say anything about it. Okay, so... Sure um, the point of a podcast uh, is to grow its audience. <laughs> Yes, I guess we have different objectives at the moment. No, I will I will encourage everybody I know to listen to this, no questions. Um, but yeah, okay, so since this is, I'll, I'll, I'll stop wavering and make a decision. Since this is the harder round, I'm assuming that Monarch, the Monarch connection is a little too easy. So I will go with the more obscure butterfly. I'll go with the Admiral. And, uh, oh, wait, wait, wait. I haven't locked in yet. There's also a Viceroy. Can't forget about the Viceroy. Mm-hmm. Was Lord Mountbatten Windsor a Viceroy? Uh, actually, yeah. Last minute decision. Maybe Admiral's even too difficult. I will switch to, because if he was, if he would have been 120 now, he certainly would have been around in a position of power during the time of the Raj. He could have been a Viceroy if they had Viceroys in India. All right. I may regret this, but I will do a last minute switch to Viceroy and lock that in. So as you said, there is a lot of overlap in, in state insects. So Delaware, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Ohio, and Tennessee all have the uh, seven-spotted ladybug, but New York has to be different. Its state insect is the nine-spotted ladybug. (laughs) Similarly, as you said, there are many states that use the monarch butterfly, which is very beautiful and picturesque, but uh, Kentucky, just to be different, chooses the one that looks almost exactly like the monarch, but isn't. So it's called the, you know, kind of like a governor general is the monarch's representative. This butterfly is called the Viceroy butterfly. Uh, I'm so glad uh, I pulled I that out. That, I, I forgot Lord Mountbatten was the last Viceroy of India, wasn't he? Yes, that's uh, something my, my family uh, quite a bit when I was growing up. But uh, yeah, well, I'll so. definitely tell all my colleagues to listen to me flounder around with the wrong answer and then change it with, you know, a few seconds to go. You pulled a Jonathan there. Indeed I did. Now I know why he always he always laughs after he does it. It feels really good. 
Yeah, and then the nice thing, if you're being proctored on video, there's no possibility you cheated your way to that. So we know it's authentic. Uh, indeed. All right, now David and James trying to steal from Nolan. Scrooge McDuck's sorceress nemesis, Magica Dispel, is obsessed with taking from him what totemic item that Scrooge considers the source of his good luck. Oh my god, this, yeah. this is something I would have known like 15 years ago. Um, yeah, um, I've never watched. There's this amazing show in, in Toontown in, in Disney World, Florida, that was like the DuckTales, the Scrooge McDuck that I... Okay, so... What is the, what is the source of his luck? It, it can't be something as simple as like a gold coin or a four-leaf clover. Uh-huh. I mean, I remember there's an episode of Futurama where there was like a lucky seven-leaf clover. Yeah, maybe it's no, some, it's maybe it's it some other weird number of leaves stuck yeah. inside of a of a uh, record from the Breakfast Club. Mm. Like yeah. That. Also, Scrooge um, McDuck is yeah, Scottish, that's... right? So it'd be weird to have an Irish symbol of good luck uh, with so with the Scottish character. Yeah. All right. Um, uh, do you, do you know if we're looking like the name? Does this totem totemic item have a name, or is it just a description of what it is? I mean, I'll accept either kind of the name it's often referred to as or a general description that's sufficiently specific. Okay. Okay. Um, so I wonder if the name is like a duck pun or a goose pun or some other bird-related oh, pun. I, I would guess probably some form of bird pun okay. on, on the name. So we, Presumably a duck, but it could be something else. Right. So um, we can think um, of things that might rhyme with duck. Um, remembering this is a family I, I show. Mean, <laughs> luck rhymes with duck, so we yep. can just pull that entire avenue out if we want to. The like lucky the duck. Charm. Yeah, um, but I, I don't think, again, since this is the harder round, I don't think yeah, if luck uh, was part of the answer, he wouldn't have said lucky in the question. True. Um, he did say luck or lucky in the question, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see. You've got duck, goose, gander, gosling, drake, mallard. Uh, maybe, maybe some play, some parody of the Maltese falcon, like the Maltese duck. Maybe. Uh, um, uh, at this point, I'm just seeing if I can jog your memory because I've never seen a single episode of yeah, any of the DuckTales um, cartoons. What did you say in, in the question that so- someone tried to steal it? Or Yes, his nemesis, Magica, is obsessed with taking it or stealing it from him. Okay. Um, is there anything about the character Magica Dispel that might give a clue? Like, if there's a particular reason that character I, wants the item that's associated with their character? I don't, I don't recall anything specific about her. I mean, it's clear from the name that she's some sort of witch. Um, okay. But, uh, yeah. What? Yeah. Well, if we can't think of anything at all, you know, we can just say the, the Maltese duck and be done with it. Yeah. I'm torn between, in terms of wild-ass guesses, going for that or going for, like, just the generic four-leaf clover. I know you said it's he's, he's Scottish and that's an Irish thing, but I... I I don't know. Um, I mean, I'll let you make the decision because, again, even though we're both kind of have minimal knowledge, you seem to have yeah, slightly uh, more than I do. Uh, let's go with the Maltese duck. Or All right. Some. Um. All right. We'll lock in with the uh, Maltese duck. And yeah, I think as we're, we're getting towards those, I might start instituting kind of a soft, maybe uh, three or four minute limit on uh, discussion. That's for, probably not a, a problem. Idea. 
All right, all right. So you lock in the Maltese duck? Yep. Yes. So I pass the question to you, Nolan. Okay. Um. So if I look weird in the video, I'm actually lying on the floor right now. So I I had to get my phone charger, and that's the only way I can keep it charged so it doesn't run out of juice. You guys actually talked yourself out of the right answer. Um, ah. When Scrooge McDuck was a young boy in Glasgow, he was shining shoes, and somebody paid him in in American dime. It's called his number one dime. Could you repeat that answer? A little bit of uh, noise when right when you said yeah, it. Yeah. It's the number Number one dime. Somebody gave him an American dime he couldn't spend in Glasgow, so he was determined to come to America to spend it. Yeah, so first appearing in Uncle Scrooge number three, uh, written and illustrated by the great Carl Barks back in 1953, carried over into the cartoon, and the reboot of it, where uh, Magica is voiced by Catherine Tate, opposite David Tennant as Scrooge, so a nice... I'll admit, uh, I, I was a bit bothered to see Catherine Tate play Magica, but... <laughs> well, I okay, enjoyed... Yogesh got the joke, at least. <laughs> Oh, uh, yes, yes. I, I, this is not the first Lauren Cooper reference we've had on this podcast. It, it, did, have, it did have one of the funniest all, things all, ever. All of seven episodes deep, and we've got multiple uh, references. <laughs> they had a joke in the new DuckTales about black licorice being the best flavor. I had to, like, pause, and I was laughing for, like, five straight minutes, because I'm apparently <laughs> the only person under the age of 80 who likes black licorice. So. <laughs> but, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I, I enjoy the, the Ten and Donner reunion, although, sure, uh, a Lauren Cooper reference would not be unwelcome. Him. But yes, as you said, it is the number one dime that is his source of good luck. Related to this whole discussion, if I ever come back on this podcast, Walt Disney World is going to be one of my specialist subjects. Yeah, because if, no, yeah. Yogesh, you need you need to come up with all your hardest superhero questions and do a special with just Mike Cameron and I to have us go face to face on that and see how we do. Would you do that? I'll, I'll see. Yeah, he he definitely did pretty well on the comic book questions in his episode. All right, so now David and Nolan. To- from James. Okay. So, the Atlanta Braves won their division every year between 1991 and 2005, not counting the strike-shortened season of 1994, frequently beating their divisional rivals, the Mets. But during that stretch, they only won a single World Series. What year was that? Oh, jeez. Of course it's baseball. Um, it was... You're welcome. No, it was before it was before 95. Okay. And it's, I'm pretty sure it's like 92 or 93. All right. Well, I was thinking so again, I do not follow baseball. So, I could be wrong, but I thought that the Blue Jays, didn't the Blue Jays win back-to-back years? And I thought 92 was one of those years. Okay. So, if that was if that was the first one, then that would eliminate 93 because then there would have been both Blue Jays years. Um, but it could be 91 and 92. So, 93 could still be right. So, um yeah, it's it was the early 90s though. I know that. Okay. So, you think it's not 94? No, it could be 94. I just meant that it's not, not uh, like any of the so, okay. so I did. I kind of hinted at the question, but I was trying to get across that there was, a, there was a stoppage in 1994, so there were no postseason, no playoffs in that year. Oh, thank you very much okay. for repeating that. Yeah, that's right. There was a. I like I told you, uh, baseball so is definitely one of my weak spots. That was also the the first uh, moment of national notoriety for a certain Supreme Court justice. Sonia Sotomayor was the one who uh, issued the injunction uh, stopping the strike. Oh, really? Very cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, since um, Yogesh has kindly reminded us that 94 is not an option, Nolan, I'm happy to go with your initial guess of 93, right? That's what your original guess was? Sure. I know it's one of the first years in there, so 93 okay. is fine. But if you if you want to go a year down, then I'm fine with that, too. 
I really don't know. I don't know either. So okay. let, let's just stick with 93. Why not? All right. You're locking in 1993? Yes. All right. James? Okay. So I I had basically the exact same thought process you guys did that the Blue Jays won back to back in the early 90s. I'm pretty sure it was 92 and 93. Um, And obviously, as we said, 94 didn't have a World Series. I don't think they won it all in 91. I would have, I would remember if it was the first division title they had, they, they won it all. And I don't think that's the case. So I'm, I, I'm going to go with 95. You're locking in 1995? Yeah. So uh, yeah, 91, they did reach the World Series, losing in seven games to the Twins. 92, they lost in six games to the Blue Jays. 93, they lost in the NLCS to the, the Philadelphia Phillies. Um, so they didn't reach the World Series that year, which was very exciting to watch nonetheless. 94, there was a stoppage. And again, they reached the World Series in 95 and 96. 96, they lost to the Yankees. Yeah. 95 was when they beat the uh, Cleveland Indians. Yeah, I, I I knew 96 was the start of the Yankees dynasty too. So I, I, I was able to get that that nice bead on it being one of those two-ish years. Um, either nice 97 or 95, but I, I I knew it was earlier rather than later. Like, I was not, you know, forming memories during... It's kind of froze there, James. James? Oh, hey, back on. Um, yeah, sorry about All right. that. Did, did you get my messages about the... Uh, uh, overheating? Yeah. Yes. Okay, good. All right. Yeah. Against all odds, we are still uh, be able to continue. So let's, uh, let's okay. So as um, you were saying, yeah, 90, 95, they won Tom Glavin, who in the following decade went over to the Mets. But yeah, indeed um, he did, and uh, gave up seven runs in one third of an inning in the 2007 uh, season finale against the Marlins, which I am definitely not still salty about. No, why do you ask? Um, <laughs> understand all right so okay well, let's quickly move on james and nolan now trying to steal from david what phrase this is another uh plug in the x or find the x one okay. what phrase which also appeared in the title of a season three episode of better call saul have i replaced with x in this excerpt from the abstract of a 1985 paper by hal arkeys and Catherine bloomer in organizational behavior and human decision processes titled the psychology of x so here's the quote. In a field study, customers who had initially paid more for a season subscription to a theater series attended more plays during the next six months, presumably because of their higher X in the season tickets. Several questionnaire studies corroborated and extended this finding. It is found that those who had incurred a X inflated their estimate of how likely a project was to succeed compared to the estimates of the same project by those who had not incurred a X. The basic X finding that people will throw good money after bad appears to be well described by prospect theory so how, how many words did you say was were in x i did not specify okay it could, it could be one or more um it's it's got to be something related to a sunk cost like it, it it might just be sunk cost sunk cost fallacy something like that okay let's go with sunk cost then because right. yeah i mean all all it's saying is that people who have put money into a thing are more likely to think that said thing is good or that they want to put money in that yeah it's i don't know if it's exact if it has to be exactly that but it has to be at least closely related okay we're going okay, to so sunk cost then locking in sunk cost all right and yes that is exactly the the <laughs> title of the episode i think is sunk cost plural but the phrase that i redacted sure. is sunk cost 
I, oh, yeah, I mean, fine. plural versus singular. If, if you're going to split those hairs, then then fine. Yeah, I'm not splitting those hairs. Uh, it's, it's, your answer is perfectly acceptable, and that has moved Nolan into the lead now. But the next question, David and James will get a chance to steal from him. Hugo Gernsback, founder of Amazing Stories, the first science fiction magazine and namesake of the Hugo Awards, was born and grew up in which European nation, whose two major literary awards are the Cervese Prize and the Batty Weber Prize? Can you spell Batty Weber, please? Yeah, Batty, B-A-T-T-Y, Weber, W-E-B-E-R. And the other one was Cervais? Yeah, S-E-R-V-A-I-S. Okay. Uh, I, I mean, the the name Batty Weber, it just screams British Isles to me. But Weber seems more German, and Surveys seems like it might even be French, so I... Yeah, so that, that would lean towards Switzerland, right? If you've got some German and some French in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it could also lead toward, what, like Liechtenstein? But it's, I mean, I, any I, of those tiny things like could could be it but yeah but i, I would be would very surprised their own literary awards when their population is like sixty thousand people i was just gonna bring that up it seems very odd if they'd have you know any awards much less two awards for literature yes. oh, so yeah. um hugo gernsback like you're basically guaranteeing that one percent of your population <laughs> throughout their lifetime will have received an award um i do like switzerland i mean if belgium wasn't already an answer i would i would think of that like just any of the ones where there's several distinct uh ethnic backgrounds that come together to make the country because there's definitely several uh, linguistic origins to these award names. Okay, so you want to lock in Switzerland? Sure. All right. Locking in Switzerland. Switzerland, all right. Nolan? Um, Hugo Gernsback, probably... I know we're running a little short on time. Hugo Gernsback, probably the most famous person in the U.S. to have immigrated from Luxembourg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so it's, yeah, so also the, the homeland of uh, the actress Vicky Kreps, who played the female lead in Phantom Thread. I think in my uh, brief review of that, I said she gives a performance with the confidence of someone who's always been the best in her country at whatever she's tried. <laughs> <laughs> As the only one in her country, I, I believe oh, she is indeed the best. If you're at Luxembourg um, and you try anything, you're probably in the top ten, so. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, Nolan gets three points, and now David and Nolan trying to steal from James. All right, so I mentioned earlier I have a couple of master's degrees. When I was getting my master's degrees at NYU, I lived in the Little Columbia area of Jackson Heights in Queens, also the setting of uh, the Oscar-nominated film Maria Full of Grace. This put me almost exactly four stops away from City Field on which New York City subway line? Huh. Great. Uh, it's I've, going to. I've never. I've lived in Chicago. I've lived in L.A. I've never been to New York. So I just know there's like the A train. But I don't know where anything goes there or where it is, which is kind of the problem. If you take the A train, you're gonna take a big L. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to, and I'm not fine. I'm trying to find anything else in the clues. You know, the whole Columbia thing. Um, I, I Maria full of grace. There might be a hint there, but it doesn't seem like it um catalina sandina moreno was the actress who got nominated for an oscar for that movie but i don't think any of those three names are names of subway lines uh in new york um and i, I mean is this going to be a letter or is it going to be an actual word that's the name of the, uh, of the train i have no idea i don't um, like also I, we have we have to consider new york 
Yeah. We have to consider how this is related to one of James' uh, categories, right? Because it doesn't. I don't see a baseball connection. Um, I don't see an astronomy connection offhand, but maybe. City Field is uh, what was built on the side City of the Field State. is is the home of the New York Metropolitan Baseball. Program. Oh, city with an eye, city with two eyes. I should say. I get it now. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. And in fact, subway stop is labeled Mets. Mets. Will it's too right. Okay. Yeah. I don't think we're going to be able to tease anything out. Do you want to just pick a letter of the alphabet and guess it? Sure. Let's try C-Train. Okay. Sounds good. You were in the entirely wrong segment of enumerated things. It is the uh, seven line. So we were appropriately not in the ballpark. You were not (laughs) in the ballpark. And the seven line army is the group of rabid Mets fans that infests various Uh ballparks around the country uh, since, what, 2014 or something? Yeah. And and the brave pitcher John Rocker got his suspension for uh, insulting the populace that rides the seven train. Describing Um, that as insulting the populace is a bit generous. It was just like, let's insult every different type of minority that could possibly be going to the Mets game in New York City. Yeah, not uh, yeah, not not a great uh, set of comments. But yeah, I I normally rode the train in the opposite direction downtown, but you know, not uptown towards Flushing. Yeah. But I did go to to a Braves versus Mets game, and and yeah, but yeah that that area, uh, Jacksonite, also the origin of Scrabble. In fact, there's a street sign a few oh. blocks away from me where they have added little Scrabble values to all the letters in it. Now that's cool. Yeah. I did not know that. <laughs> um, I've seen right. that oh. sign. Like a picture of it. Yeah, it's pretty cool. All right, so James and Nolan now trying to steal from David. Robert Sanchez, a retired Albuquerque firefighter who can be glimpsed in the background of several Breaking Bad scenes portraying a DEA agent, is a competitor, or at least was at the time, in what shall we say fringe activity, whose 2019 national championships were held in Tinley Park, Illinois. Although his role in Breaking Bad was non-speaking, it shouldn't really come as a surprise to anyone who saw him that this is his hobby. Ooh. Now, what I was thinking while this this question was being read was that, you know, some sort of fringe hobby like geocaching, that could be a thing. But I doubt that there would be a world championship of it and that it I would know. be for some reason in Tinley Park, Illinois. Now I'm just trying to think because I was, you know, up until very recently living in Chicago. That is one of the, the suburbs that's pretty close to Chicago. And I just I can't think of, of anything. <laughs> that would be there other than sadness. Um, <laughs> professional Malort that's, that's mainly to pin the answer. I think the national championship rotates to different places from year to year. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm sure it's not a, a static thing, but I'm, I'm just saying that, like, there's nothing really distinctive about Tinley Park that would make me think of a certain thing being there. I could be entirely wrong. Yeah, I have no idea. Maybe like Ultimate Frisbee or something? So, Ultimate Frisbee, there's now a a national league. That would have been friend. Yeah, it's not, it's not, about if it was for fringe, it's not fringe anymore, and they actually had a national championship at Franklin Field at, uh, in Philadelphia, so they wouldn't be resorting to, like, some small suburb of Chicago. I've got, yeah, I've got a smile from David, so I'm a little worried, uh, oh no. Yeah, um, I've been trying to smile the whole the whole recording. I think just, there, I'm not good at keeping there, a poker face, so I just always I smile. It, I think it might have been that. I know there was that creepy silent hitman, but I don't. <laughs> I'm not pulling anything. So if you've got a guess, then I mean, what what sort of fringe niche 
hobbies are there that one could have a national championship of? Hmm. Wife carrying, cheese rolling, tug of war. Um, I don't think tug of war is a hobby, but it's got the right spirit. Um, swimming. Man, I have no idea. It could be embroidery for all I know. I still can't shake geocaching as okay. the you know quintessential fringe Good hobby enough. in my mind. So I'm gonna I, I unless you have something better, I'll, I'll go. I'll go. I'll go with you on geocaching sure. because nothing Geocache. I have is any more likely to be true. So all right. Lock in geocaching? Yeah. Yep. All right. Pass over to David. Okay. I think I know. Before I answer, Yogesh, can you clarify? You said his real, the actor's real career was an Albuquerque firefighter. Yeah, he was retired at the time, but he had okay. been. Okay. So that's, that, that's not, did, did you mention uh, anything about the character he played on the show? I said it was a DEA agent or someone okay. in the VA office. Then yes, I, I have my guess. I have not heard the name for sure, but I remember it was one of the, the episodes in the final season where it's a really dramatic moment where like Hank is walking out of his office at the DEA to announce that he, you know, has found out the truth about Walter White to his uh, his boss. And there was this guy sitting at a desk who had this crazy beard and mustache, just like the wackiest facial hair I'd seen in a long time. I know there are actual competitions where people show off their facial hair and like oh, the Lord. most interesting or the longest is, so I'm gonna say the competition was for uh, facial hair. And if, if I need to be more specific, I can, but I'll keep it at that for now. That's fine, yeah. He was a competitor of the National Beard and Muscle Championship. Uh, it it should job. be quite, quite unsurprising to anyone who saw him, even without him saying anything, that that was his hobby. So, yes, very good. And the last question of this round now goes to David and James trying to steal from Nolan. Provel, a processed cheese product made by combining cheddar Swiss and provolone cheeses, is the customary topping for the style of pizza named St. for what shape? It's St. Louis. Lock it in. All right. Uh, okay. All right. Yes. And thanks to uh, Christopher King at Five Course Trivia. Uh, I kind of stole that question from him. So that is now we end the round with a bit of a reversal in scores. James, 20.0. David, 17.3. Nolan, 23.0. So Nolan is in the lead as we move into the super hard round. These questions <laughs> are now worth, now worth six points as a steal, five points as a specialist, three points if a bonus occurs. And the first one of these goes to David and Nolan trying to steal from James. Oh boy. This is much closer than any previous episodes have been in a while. But... Alright, the 18th century Titius Bode Law proposed that the orbits of planets orbiting the sun could be modeled with a fairly simple exponential expression. So let's say we define the length of the semi-major axis of Earth's orbit, more or less the distance between Earth and the sun, in other words, as 10 units. These are just arbitrarily defined units, but let's say 10 of them is the length of the semi-major axis of Earth's orbit. According to Bode's law, how many of these units would constitute the length of the semi-major axis of Mercury's orbit? And yeah, it's just a positive integer value. No, nothing super complicated okay yeah i'm kind of at a loss here but i think we just gotta okay so we're assuming if i understand how this is working uh nolan that um the answer is going to be a number smaller than 10 because mercury is closer to the sun is if i'm gonna i've never heard of this equation so wait, i don't wait, have wait. The, hold, hold on Mer mercury is closer to the to the sun than earth is is is, is this one yes I, <laughs> there was a lot of information there i just want to make sure we're talking about you know length and not yeah. some you know other metric so at least that restricts our guesses to an integer less than 10 um 
I mean, so the Earth is 93 million miles from the sun, roughly. I think Mercury might be, boy, I don't know. Uh, do you have any? It might be like 35 million miles away. I have absolutely no idea on this. Okay. Uh, but he said it was an exponential equation, so it probably wouldn't yeah. just be, you know, a, a ratio of distance like that. Yeah. Um, so I don't think we're going to be able to, like, come up with any, you know, any logic. He said it was a whole, he said it was a whole integer, though, so we've got a one to nine shot, right? Exactly, exactly. Exactly. So I say we've got Venus in the middle, so we have at least a one in eight shot just by guessing. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, uh, do you want me to just pick a number? Uh, I don't have anything better, so I don't know. Let's try four or five. We'll say four. We'll... Okay, four. All right. I'll uh, pass it over to James, you know. Um. So I'm trying to, to work this out mathematically right now. It's not going great. Um, I thought it, I didn't think it was an exponential. I thought it was a power law, like a, a one over distance rather than an exponential to distance. But based on the fact that you're saying it's an exponential, I'm just going to go with E is my answer, 2.7. <laughs> so three uh, if so you're rounded to the nearest integer. Okay, yeah. So um, I was, yeah, I, was, I was, would have cut you off if you'd gone too much longer. Because, yeah, basically, the lo- it really works better for the ones after Mercury. Basically, the nth planet after Mercury you can model as, if you call the distance between Earth and the Sun 10, each one will be, like, 4 plus three times two to the n minus one. But uh, for Mercury, you just drop out the exponential. So the first one is basically, well, I said, I, I multiplied everything by 10 to make the calculations easier. If you call the distance between Earth and the Sun one astronomical unit, which is technically yeah. the... Uh, so That's how you define the astronomical unit. Exactly, right. So Mercury is actually about 0.39 astronomical units. So uh, the Bode's Law actually does a very good job of predicting it because it would have placed that at four out of 10. So in fact david and nolan's answer is correct <laughs> wow it's it's not fair but i'm happy for the points it's just like <laughs> random, guess of, random guess of a number yeah. for the win good to okay. know that i wasn't getting points on that even if i did figure it out though um. <laughs> okay so now james and nolan trying to steal from david often cast as a Native American or East Asian, despite being of Sicilian and Portuguese descent, who is the only actor who played one of the titular Ocean's Eleven in the original 1960 film to make a cameo in the 2001 remake? He's also appeared opposite Frank Sinatra in The Manchurian Candidate, where their character's hand-to-hand combat scene has sometimes been dubbed the first karate fight in a mainstream Hollywood movie. Oh... I will go with whatever answer you have, because my current answer is Smithson Johnsington. Um, <laughs> your, your, your answer is as good as mine. I don't know. I can think of Iron Eyes Cody, who was a fake Indian, who was an actor. I don't have anything better than that, though. Go, so. go for okay. it. I mean, Iron Eyes Cody. All right, locking in Iron Eyes Cody? Yep. All right, David? So I'm sure this actor has a fine, large body of work, as Yogesh pointed out, rattling off some of his credits. I only know him essentially as a trivia associated with um, Ocean's Eleven. At some point, maybe like my third or fourth rewatch of the movie, I tried to see if like any of the Rat Pack had made like hidden cameos that I didn't know about. And it turns out there were uh, two people who were in the original Rat Pack Ocean's Eleven that also had a cameo uh, in the movie. I think they were both um, people that attended the big fight at the fight night when the power goes out and they do the heist 
Um, one of them was Angie Dickinson, who was not one of the 11. She, I think, was just Frank Sinatra's character's wife or girlfriend or something. But the actor who was one of the 11, I believe his name was Henry Silva. I'll just lock in with Silva just to be safe. Good to be safe. Okay. But yeah, that is uh, Portuguese, uh, name of Portuguese ethnicity. And that is the correct answer. And I think your recollection of where they make cameos is also correct. All right. So David and James now trying to steal from Nolan. The 1980s miniseries Riley Ace of Spies took its team music from the Gadfly Suite, an arrangement of Dmitry Shostakovich's score of a 1955 Soviet film adaptation of The Gadfly, which was an 1897 novel by the Irish-born writer Ethel Voynich, who coincidentally may have had an affair with the real-life Sidney Riley Ace of Spies. Now, listen closely, because this is not a true-false question. Ethel Voynich was the youngest of the five brilliant daughters of what massively influential 19th-century autodidact and intellectual who wrote The Laws of Thought? A lot of information there. Um, okay. Who wrote The Laws of what? The Laws of, the laws of Thought. T-H-O-U-G-H-T. Oh, thought. Okay, so this not a true or false question has to be a clue, and I'm not. Um, I will say, even though the the Gadfly Suite is entirely foreign to me, I'll have to look that yeah. up just for the purposes of entomological trivia. But uh, if there's a hint there, I I don't know. Um, so there must be some. I guess this this autodidact, as it were, he's presumably going to have the same surname. That that's going to need for the yeah, answer. Yeah. Something to do with true or false, and uh, I guess, uh, yeah, an 18th century, was that mentioned anywhere in the- 19th century. 19th this, century. This person's lifespan, I'll just tell you, was entirely contained in the 19th century. Okay, yeah, um, not true or false, so there's like, true or false is a binary aspect to those choices. Um, Maybe. Uh, oh, is it non Is it like gonna be someone like uh, that's not the right one? One of the prominent feminists, maybe like not Judith Butler. That's way too too early for that. But yeah, I I don't know. That may be going too far down the the rabbit hole yeah. with like the the meanings of these of these clues. Like I think mm-hmm. that if that were the issue, he could have just mentioned binary somehow in the uh, in the question instead of going with true false. True. Um, is I, I, know, I mean also we're 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 in the uh, the harder phase of questions yeah. now, so the answer might not be somebody as easy or as as widely known yeah uh, the name Diderot came to mind. Um, I think Diderot, that was like, you said? yeah, like I think Denise Diderot was the guy who like made like the, some encyclopedia. Yeah, he, and, he edited the original encyclopedia. Okay, I don't know if uh, just someone who would have been like self-taught, you know. He that might was, have been. I I don't. I, all I know about him is that he edited the original encyclopedia. Um, okay, yeah, that, that could just be way out of left field there, and I'm not seeing any connection to like the whole Sidney Riley, unless there was like an author who had a character in a famous book whose name was Sidney or Riley. Um, yeah. Voltaire was the I mean, 18th he, he century, did, right? He did write other things. Like, th- that wasn't the only thing he did. So it's possible that he could have written a book with a, a character named Sidney or Riley or both. But... Yeah. Wondering, did Henry Fielding, or Henry Fielding, I, I, the, the name Riley with, like, a, a book of, a classic of literature, does, it's ringing a faint bell... Henry Fielding may have been 1700s, not 1800s, so that wouldn't... Uh, but these are all just, like, faint whispers. These are not, like, anything. Um, if you have something you feel strongly about, I'm happy to go with it. Otherwise, I say, in the interest of time, I'll just... I, I would like to... Um, we'll say Diderot for now, just to say something. And if he can confirm that when he logs back on, we can lock that in. Just I'll wait to hear 
get his consent. I'm actually looking back. I'm actually not sure why I assigned this question to no one. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm not sure either, but... <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I guess there's a tie-in to literature, maybe that's what I... I I'm trying, yeah, I'm uh, trying to go back and read my thought processes, and I'm like, did I mean to give this to David by mistake? Um, but no, probably it was a literature tie-in. Yeah, the, the gadfly insect reference, if that's what was the intention, that is uh, definitely uh, appropriate for you know this level of difficulty, because that's very deep cut as far as insects and classical music it goes hello okay so james is back i i am currently standing in front of my freezer with the phone inside of the freezer in order to prevent any possible future overheating events so um uh, we're, we're nearing the end so we don't have to, yeah. to hold on this for all that much longer yeah. so you were uh you and uh, david were closing in on an answer i believe you want to just lock in Diderot just because it sounds like we yeah, don't really lock, have lock much else in Diderot. i that i i've clearly lost my train of thought because i'm trying to figure out ways to prevent my phone from overheating so yeah let's go with that all right yeah we'll just lock that in Diderot. Uh, okay nolan um so i have absolutely no idea what the answer to this is i know Diderot would have been a little earlier and he was late 18th century um true false is leading me to either or for soren kierkegaard and i have nothing better so i'll guess kierkegaard oh that's mm. a good idea. So, um, yeah, that's an interesting interpretation. And, and you both uh, did uh, lock in on that as being a key clue, which it was. Um, I would have hoped that kind of the Irish-born would lead you more toward the British Isles and away from the continent of Europe. But, yeah, I said autodidact, intellectual, author. I did not say mathematician, which might have been a more useful clue, because the uh, the true-false is, of course, a, a key element of... Bull. It was bull, wasn't it? Boolean logic, which was developed by George Boole, man who had five brilliant daughters who were unable to capitalize on their brilliance because they lived in a time when women did not have many opportunities. His eldest daughter, Mary Elton Hinton, was married to Charles Howard Hinton, who did a lot of interesting. He lived in many, he lived for a while, U.S., Japan, England. He invented the baseball pitching machine. He coined the term what? tesseract for the, yeah, he for the, uh, pitching machine? Yes. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it, and coined the term tesseract in his science fiction for a four-dimensional analog of a cube. Yeah. And then his son, Sebastian Hinton, who was also a grandson of George Boole, invented the jungle gym. And his daughter, yeah, his daughter, Joan Hinton, was a physicist on the Manhattan Project, where she discovered <laughs> right. that one of the other physicists there who had come from the UK, G.I. Taylor, was also a grandson of George Boole, descended from one of his other daughters. That's so, uh, that's wow, that's incredible. remarkable. Yeah, a, a rich, genetic, yeah, yeah. rich genetic legacy in that family. Um, and if only we'd been more enlightened, his, I think all five of those daughters could be remembered as geniuses today. Yeah. All right, so now David and Nolan kind of steal from James. My lunch, perhaps the most emotionally devastating episode of Scrubs, was based on a real-life 2004 incident at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas in which four recipients of organ transplants from a 20-year-old Arkansas man all died after contracting what disease from the donated tissue? Ah. crying from thinking of that actual episode. Um, yeah, so I have seen, I think I've seen that episode in syndication at one point, but it's not helping me. I remember, like, the, I don't remember how, but I don't remember if I can remember any shreds of dialogue from it. You know, I think Dr. Cox was the one who made the decision that led to uh, all of them uh, all of them dying. 
like to to use the the tissue and the organ transplants and then he of course severely regrets it in, in the um, episode but, was there a question about whether the tissue should have been used or uh i think so i think there was i mean i think that's what made it like a i'm so there were, there have been episodes where it was like there's a dilemma and they, they you have to make a choice you make the wrong choice as opposed to like where it's just one of these things that's beyond your control like how could you have known that they were infected but i think they've had episodes with kind of similar quandaries so it could have very well been like some disease that was hidden so that even like with the traditional medical scans and tests that a trained doctor wouldn't notice but again the disease in the show could have been totally different from the disease that happened in real life the question was in real life what was the disease um and something that's failed too so it it killed four of them so yeah well i the only way we can go at it is trying to go at it from the disease end then so what kind of diseases could you get from tissue that you put in somebody like rabies um, yeah, I don't think rabies. So, so I'll just tell you because like it would be too obscure to to make you remember this one news story. It is the same disease from the episode and real life. Okay. Okay. That helps. Yeah, a little, uh, a little bit, but I still don't remember. Um, um, so rabies doesn't seem likely because I think if you have rabies, the symptoms are pretty clear. Like they don't yeah. take a long time to develop. I think most standard tests would would reveal that at least something was wrong. You do more tests to find out it was rabies. Yeah. Um, HIV. Uh, uh, HIV would probably take a while, though. Yeah, yeah that's you, true. Even in the though episode, a lot of people who have organ transplants have are immunocompromised, that would probably take a while to have any kind of effect. Yeah, because in the episode, I think they died. Like, I don't think like a lot of time had passed. I think they they died pretty quickly. Like, it was yeah. they found out the problem when all three of those donors or the donees they all just died I, in their hospital. Isn't there like Guillaume Barre? I've never heard of that, but I know it's uh, a, if condition i'm trying to think though um i was reading a story about bubble boy in the new york times that kid who had no immune system and he got a bone marrow transplant and there was some kind of virus in there mm. and i don't remember what it was that he died from um yeah so it's I... more likely a virus than a bacterial infection okay um so i didn't watch a lot of scrubs i did watch a lot of the show house is there any chance this is lupus <laughs> <laughs> lupus is an autoimmune disease you know it's never, it's lupus. never lupus it's never lupus <laughs> man <laughs> i know but Except when it is. Rabies is the best guess I have. Exactly one time that it was. Yeah, that's true. There's also an insect connection there because I believe like one of the symptoms of lupus is something called a butterfly rash. Uh, But um, yeah, but it sounds like um, since you you feel very strongly against lupus and you you think rabies is more. I know lupus is an autoimmune disease, so I don't know if you get it from a transplant. But that's a good point. Okay, I think we're not going to cope with anything better in the time we have, so I'm okay with rabies. Okay, I have nothing better, and okay, rabies it is. All right. How in the fuck did you luck into the right answer on this? (laughs) So, yeah, rabies is actually very rare in the U.S. nowadays, so it's just not screened for in organ transplants, and that's kind of unlikely to change just because organs need to be transplanted right away, and there's just not time to test for every disease, especially ones as rare as rabies. So it was just a very tragic luck of the draw that this donor, no one knew that he had rabies, until after the organs had gone to four people. Also, wow. I have terrible, terrible fear of contracting rabies, so that might have had something to do with it, even though they're yeah, like yeah. 10 cases a year in the U.S. Yeah. Oh, wow. That very impressive poll. Uh, thank you very much for that, the That was not a poll. A poll would mean that I had some way of pulling it. This, that was a guess. <laughs> But well, like you, you, met, you metaphorically pulled it from somewhere. 2,000 people a year die of rabies, <laughs> but there are only like one or two in the U.S. every year. 
So right, yeah. So you did. Uh, you you knew at least it was a viral disease. So you did have some yeah. knowledge. Yeah. All right. So James and Nolan now trying to steal from David. Produced by the noted French actor Jacques Perrin, who later made a similar film about birds called Winged Migration. What groundbreaking 1996 nature documentary, which shares its name with a series of piano pieces composed by Bella Bartok, gave viewers a close-up view of interactions within the insect world. Wow. I know, like, each of the individual pieces in this question I've heard of before, and I think I know of at least one thing they've done, but I just, what what is this combination here? <sighs> Nothing. Nada. I have, if I win this game, it's because I was working with two people who are way better than I was. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the title of a concerto or something by Jacques Perrin. Um, no, it, it was a documentary by Jacques Perrin, a concerto by Bella Bartok. Oh, a series okay. of piano pieces. Bartok, a no, not a concerto, a series of piano pieces. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I'm. I really. I'm. I'm really out. Out, out of guesses. Um. Well, I guess. Hmm. How about? Have we tried? We have. We did get cricket right the last time, so we can we, try. We cricket. did not get cricket right. Um. So butterfly was already used. Yeah. Well, the, used. the viceroy butterfly has already yeah. been an answer. Meaning butterfly might be off the table, so we may want. I mean, do you have anything better than cricket, or? I. I don't have anything even good. Forget about better than another idea. Okay. Hmm. Locust? Okay. A locust. Why not? Guessing has been a surprisingly good strategy so far this game, but uh, your, your luck did not hold. Uh, yeah. So, uh, David? So you said you want the name of the 1996 documentary? Or I don't know if you mentioned the year. I think I know what it is. That's why I said the year. Yeah, I, th- I did say 1996, and yes, I do want the title of the documentary. Okay, yes. I have seen this. I saw it in theaters. Uh, my mom took me to see it when I was a kid at like the local art house theater because that's the only place where they'd play a documentary that just pretty much deals with bugs and arachnids and other small creatures. I believe the poster was a picture of a praying mantis with sunglasses on it, and the name of the documentary was Microcosmos. Oh, that is definitely right. That is the Bartok piece. Yeah, Microcosmos, Microcosmos, however you say it. That is correct and pushes David into the lead narrowly over Nolan. And now this question for uh, David and James trying to steal from Nolan. So Inspector Gadget was the first American production by DIC Audiovisuel, a French company. In the French version of that cartoon, Gadget's niece, who is much younger than him but far wiser, is given what first name? It's a very common girl's name in France, although an expert symbologist like Robert Langdon could probably tell you it derives from ancient Greek. Hmm. Well, Sophie would be Greek. Um... Well, I'll tell you this. I'm pretty sure in the U.S., the cartoon, I think I saw a couple episodes of as yeah. a kid. I think the niece's name was Penny. So Penny? I'm wondering Penny. Yes, I think it was Penny. That, so I'm that wondering. sounds right to me. Um, right, but I don't think, since this is the really hard one, it's probably not going to be the same. I'm wondering if maybe no. uh, her name in French was a unit of currency, similar in value to a penny. Huh, maybe. But, like, it would also have to be, he said it was a common girl's name. Like, it wasn't just some random thing. Right, so I'm wondering if there's any other, and also there's the Robert Langdon clue. So Robert Langdon yeah. was in all those Dan Brown books, The Da Vinci Code, The Lost Symbol, Angels and Demons, Inferno, yeah. another one that I'm not remembering. Um, I have read The Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons. I think I read The Lost Symbol, but the fact that I said I think tells you how much I remember of it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
I I listened to the audiobook version of Angels and Demons when I was like nine. Um, I also saw the movie version of Angel of Angels and Demons and the Da Vinci Code. Um, so yeah, so I mean, certainly there's a lot of religious symbology in those books. Yeah. So any religious terms deriving it's from not, Greek? There's no way it's gonna be like Mary. That's not a, a Greek name. Um, Drachma. Drachma. <laughs> Yes, of the, course. The you know, tons of in, uh, French girls named Drachma. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I'm trying to think of other. I mean, this whole penny currency thing could be way off base, so I don't mean to force be, you in that but, direction. I mean, it's it's better than than my uh, yeah. train of thought right now. All right. Well, um, I mean, is it possible that there's you know, penny it does go back to Greek? Um, I'm trying to, I mean, like, so, uh, th there is a, a beetle called a water penny, and I'm pretty sure its scientific name is, is a cephenid. Um, so the, the P being there at the start, there could be an actual etymology there. Um, so that, but that, that could that, be totally that, unrelated. You, you, that, that thing you just said about cephenid, that, that just reminded me of my first guest, Sophia. Like, it, that, the first part of that word is similar uh. to Sophia. It's, and Sophia is definitely Greek. And yeah. I will say a, a relationship to the penny somehow. Yeah, I will um, say uh, Sephenid starts with there's actually a silent P in there. It's PS. Uh, okay. Sorry, Sephenid. But, but yeah, um, still, the, the, the Sophie part. Translating names between yeah. different languages, you're not always looking for perfection. You're just looking for something that works. Okay. Um, you know what? I, I think I, I'm liking your guess better than mine because I just think that the answer wouldn't be the same in the American version as it would be in the original French version. Yeah. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure Penny is the American one. So if you want, I'd rather I'd, pick a. It makes sense to me. Like that, it it feels right. I think that is that is the right answer. Um, or that that penny would be the American one. Not, I'm not feeling great about my answer, but I'm feeling. All right. Okay. Well, yeah. I think we've. I don't think we're gonna get any further with more discussion. So yeah, I'm yeah. okay with locking in with you. Said sure, Sophie. Sure. So what? Why are you locking in? I, I, Let's go with Sophia. Sophia. Okay, I'm okay with that. Sophia is what okay. we'll lock in with. Locking in Sophia. All right, Nolan. Yogesh, my friend. Um, I have absolutely no idea what this is. And I've, I've got two guesses, though. All One right. of them being Helene, which I know is a very common um, French female name. And I know that is derived from Greek. The other one that I was thinking of was Chloe, which I know is derived from Greek. And that's just because I was a character on Miraculous, which is a very criminally underrated show that more people should watch. <laughs> and since I can't use external resources to flip a coin, I am <laughs> just going to... I'm guessing Helene just for the hell of it to see what happens. I have no idea if it's right. Helene, all right. So um, keywords here, wiser, ancient Greek. Mm. And then, of course, if you know the uh, Robert Langdon, not the first book he was in, uh, but the most famous one, The Da Vinci Code, the name of his love interest, who was French and had a, a fairly common French girl's name, also relatively common in the U.S. and U.K. This may end up deciding the game, that extra syllable you added, because her name was Sophie. Oh, uh, I do God remember damn. that now, yeah, because Audrey Tattoo played her in the movie, right? Yep. That does ring a bell. Uh, and Sophia and Sophie are, in fact, distinct names, so I can't give you that. I, I would have given it to them, but... That's no, it's a pronunciation rule. Yeah. They, we, we distinctly switch from Sophie to Sophia. It's, it's fair. <laughs> I switched because I thought, no, it wouldn't be Sophie. It would have to be Sophia. Sophia is much more common. But Sophia is more common like, in Eastern Europe, yeah. In France, I think, like, Sophie Marceau, yeah. It's uh, it's more yeah. Sophie. 
This is future Yogesh with a clarification. Sophie, like Sophia, is derived from the ancient Greek word for wisdom. Okay, so we are both one last cycle. Each of you gets one remaining specialist question and two chances to steal. And this is very much, well, at least with David and Nolan, neck and neck. Okay, so David and Nolan now trying to steal from James. Retired New York Mets reliever John Franco has been credited with more saves than any southpaw or left-handed pitcher in Major League history. So I'll give you a I'll give you a nice big margin of fifty. Within fifty, how many saves did he record in his Major League career? Mm. Mm. All right. So. So there has to be at least one save. We know that. <laughs> <laughs> so we, our okay. minimum is going to be fifty-one here. And that gives us somewhere between one and one. 101. Okay, so what what decades did John Franco play in? I have absolutely no idea. Okay. I know the um, Mets started as a team in the 1960s, though. Okay, that's that's good. That's good help. So because in the you know back half of baseball's history, I know that as far as starting pitchers, they didn't play very often compared to uh, you know in the early 20th century and late 19th century. So, but with saves, it could be different because you're only playing for a couple innings a game. I. I would assume that people would play more games as as relievers or as closers than than starting pitchers would. Um, so you know, whereas what would a, a starter in today's game of baseball play like you know start thirty games? Maybe even that's too many. Um, I don't know how many pitchers are usually in a rotation, but saves it could be could be a lot more. You, you could play every other game, and if it's within fifty, uh, that's often a clue as to like kind of the order of magnitude we're talking about here, right? Yeah. Um, unless it's so. intentionally misleading. Uh, like I'd like to think that the answer is going to be a number is somewhere in but, the hundreds, like a three but, a three digit number. Yeah, I was gonna say I was I was half joking by saying it has to be at least one because since he holds the record, it has to be a minimum of one so uh, so i'm going to say but we've got a wide range so the problem being and let's just say he played for let's just say we think he played for 20 years i totally guess but pitchers have longevity um i know there was wasn't it like julio franco that played for a very long time so yeah uh, so let's say until he was nearly 50 um i wonder if they're related maybe that longevity is genetic (laughs) let's Okay, let's say that he has... Actually, let's go with, like... Let's go with 100. That gives us a range of 50 to 150. Hmm. Either way. That doesn't seem like enough for being the all-time leader, but I'm... uh... He said all-time leader for a left-handed pitcher, though. Oh, right, right. I totally forgot about that part. And I don't know how many... Like, I don't know if the the one-to-nine ratio... We we can't assume that he saved every game he was in. That's true, too. He played in every single game that was on the schedule. Okay. Well, I will defer to you. What did you want to go with? I'm going to say let's go with 50 let's go with 51 and that gives us a range now it has to be at least let's go with 51 that gives us a range of 1 to 101 um or do you want to go higher than that would you rather go up to like i really felt it would be higher because aren't left-handed pitchers have an advantage more so than righties because they're they're rarer and so batters are less uh you have less practice defending or you know hitting it against them uh that's why i thought it would be higher but okay let's let's go let's go up to 100 then and that gives us a range of 75 to 100 and 50 to 150 okay if i just stole the question away from us i apologize but i would feel more comfortable with a higher number so 100 yeah okay we'll lock in 100 all right 100 you certainly move them in the correct direction but that is definitely not the right answer um 100 as career totals but so what i can come up with off the top of my head is that 
the obviously the record holder, Mariano Rivera, he's got in the neighborhood of 500 saves. I forget exactly how many. Trevor Hoffman is number two, and I think he's got like 420-ish, near 400. Uh, Franco, he was coming out of an era where everything was, where people were less save-focused than they were when Hoffman and Rivera were around. And I know that he didn't really uh, contest for that record at any point. The the number 320 is is calling me. So I'm, I'm going to go with that. 320. Yeah, if you had uh, gotten the bonus, I would have asked if who was, of the four pitchers who have more career saves than him, do you know who the only one who never pitched in the 21st century was? Of the four people who got more saves than than Franco. Yeah, um, I would go with Eckersley. Yeah, since Eckersley spent much of his career as a starting pitcher, so he was a, oh. a little lower. Uh, the one, uh, this is, a, uh, this that actually would have been a good time to guess Smith. Oh. Yeah, Lee Smith, but Franco himself had 424 saves. So now oh, you wow. get... I didn't know. Shit, I didn't know he was that. Well, sorry I got us to totally undershoot it, man. (laughs) It's okay. I think I probably would have guessed 500, which would have still been wrong, but it would have been a lot closer, so it would have felt worse being that close. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, basically taking the margin and adding an order of magnitude to things what you were doing, David. That, yeah, Yeah. surprisingly. (laughs) Good strategy. Um, But yeah, Franco pitched for 22 years, so he accumulated quite a few saves in that time. Yeah, I mean, I I knew he he was very, very old by the time I started watching him pitch in the 90s um, and I knew he had a lot of saves I just didn't realize that it was you know very close to what uh, Mariano and and uh, Hoffman were doing I think yeah Rivera ended up somewhere in the 600s I think um, yeah 652 all right yeah. So the penultimate question of the game goes to James and Nolan trying to steal from David. Uh, in the 2019 Hollywood adaptation of Little Women, still in theaters now, Bob Odenkirk becomes the latest actor to portray the father of the March sisters. Now, that patriarch is somewhat one-dimensional in the original novel uh, and in most of the films, but Geraldine Brooks's Pulitzer Prize-winning work of fan fiction, March, flushes him out. Here's the question. What is his first name? Usually- <laughs> I knew that was going to be the question the entire time. It doesn't help me, though, because I don't know the answer. Um, yeah. uh, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I even looked up this bloody movie and Saoirse Ronan's like my celebrity crush, and it's the accent. <laughs> <sighs> I do not remember. Time I mean, we, we, we could just go for like a common from the 1960s. Um, I was going to say, what's a common like mid 19th century name like Robert or John or William or I something? I was going to go with Bob. Um, I mean, I, th- I think our best guess is to go with, it's either going to be like a common name like that, or it's going to be some ridiculous like biblical oh, okay, name yeah. that fell out of favor by then. Yeah, no, like it's, it's definitely going to be something that like either, yeah, either we know like 10 people with this name or nobody has been named that since like 1871 um, i know the problem is we I have no idea which one it is i we have to go with the common one right because what how would we even come up with a name that we've never heard of true okay um that bob bill uh john james let's um, go with james <laughs> Let's go with James on that. Okay. Okay, James. All right, David. I have not seen uh, Little Women or read the book or seen any of the adaptations. Um, my guess would have been James, if only to make it a reference to Better Call Saul, because before he was known as Saul Goodman, oh. uh, the character's name was Jimmy McGill or James huh. Morgan McGill. So if James is right, that is a great steal. And after uh, you know 
uh, I've been lucky with a couple of guesses. It's about time that you got a lucky guess on something for me. But since I can't guess James, <laughs> I will guess something else. Uh, there are other aliases that uh, Saul slash Jimmy has used over the course of the show. Um, the first one that comes to mind is Gene Takovic, which is the mild-mannered Cinnabon manager that's trying to essentially stay in the criminal's version of witness protection to avoid being arrested by the DEA and FBI and whoever else. Um, there's also plenty of other, like, people he's posed as in his cons and schemes and scams, but nothing else is coming to mind. Um, he had a brother named Chuck on the show, Charles, that could be, um, or it could even just be Morgan, because that was his middle name on the show. Again, I'm just hoping there's like a better Call Saul or Breaking Bad connection, besides just the fact that it's Bob Odenkirk who's playing the character. Um, so without really any anything else to anchor me, I'll just say, yeah, I'll just say Gene. Gene? Yes. I don't know how common a name that was in the 19th century. I have no but, idea. I mean, Eugene O'Negan was 19th century, right? Yes, but yeah, you, Eugene is the anglicized version of Yevgeny, which is a Russian name, and it was not common until the mid-20th century in America. Okay. But, um, yeah, so so this, again, yeah, was a, um, I'm wondering, maybe I should have switched this one and the um, Gadfly question in terms of uh, David Nome, but this was pretty much straight up a literature, if not knowing the original novel, then March, which uh, one the Pulitzer Prize in, I think, 2006, actually beating out the other shortlisted work was E.L. Doctorow's work, another novel about the Civil War, which was called The March, which was seemed very confusing if you're a voter, yeah. but um, yeah. Anyway, um, so often in these games, you know, just sticking with your first instinct works. The very first name that you guys said, Robert, is correct. Oh, God damn it. Well, at least we, at least it was a common name that we could have guessed, and it wasn't Obadiah or something. Yes, yep. yeah. And yeah, some name that you said nobody's been named since 1870. Yeah, so um, if you guys had stuck with that, it would have put Nolan in the lead. But now, going into the last question, David holds a narrow lead. But um, since, yeah, Nolan and David are on opposite sides of this last question. Um, a good, a good duel to you, sir. Let's see what happens All here. All right. <laughs> All right. Good luck. So here's the question for David and James working together first. The Nobel Prize in Literature is an international prize usually given to adult-oriented literature, while the Newbery Medal is given to authors of American children's fiction. So it's not surprising that there is no overlap in the list of winners. There is, however, one Nobel Literature Laureate whose books received the Newbery Honor designation, basically meaning they were shortlisted for the Newbery Medal, three times in the 1960s, this writer also won a National Book Award in the Children's Books category in 1970. Who was it? <sighs> okay. So uh, I, nothing's coming to mind immediately. I suspect yeah. it's going to be a person that if we heard the names of any of these books, that would give it away because yeah. no, no book titles because were Because otherwise we would have gotten the title. Um, right. That's that's my hunch. Not necessarily, again, with these super hard I questions. Mean, yeah, it doesn't have to be true, but it's probably true. Yeah. Um, I know – uh, Toni Morrison uh, died recently, and so she's been in the news a lot. I don't yeah. think she certainly didn't write any books that were aimed at children, but I could see, you know, uh, children being, you know, taught about them in school just because of around the time of civil rights and the yeah. um, since race I, was a component of. I, I, I don't think that any of at least any of her famous books aren't going to be uh, nominated for the for the Newbery Award. Um, but th like, again, this was a it was a Newbery honor. So I might have missed. Does Newbery honor mean they were nominated essentially, but did not win the main? Yeah, I, okay. I think Yoga said that that it was a uh, that it was shortlisted, but did not win. Okay. 
Um, I wonder if these, sorry, Yogesh, what did you say? I said that's correct. What James said is correct. Okay. I wonder Uh, if these four books, three in the 60s, one in the 70s, are part of a series, kind of akin to um, uh, Updike's Rabbit series, you know? Uh, I I mean, any of the the people that I, I would think of as writing series for children, none of them would have ever gotten a, uh, a Nobel prize for literature. And they, they, they would have probably actually won the Newbery award, not just been nominated for it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think of just my, trying to, I've never memorized the list of Nobel winners, but I'm trying to just go. Through. I don't suppose Bob Dylan ever had a sheet music adapted <laughs> into children's books. <laughs> Dear Lord, if that's the answer, then I quit. Um, um, let's see. Who else won a Nobel Prize? Um, and it may not even be... You know, if, if Newberry... Are there a lot of uh, non-English uh, speakers that win Newberry? Uh, oh, that would... that I don't have any idea. Um, yeah. The ones that I'm familiar with are all English-speaking, but that's probably more of a selection function of me only knowing English. Um, right. Uh, and I'm, I'm hesitant to just start rattling off other names because I don't want to accidentally jog Nolan's memory and give him the right answer. <laughs> uh, and maybe I've already done it. Uh, let's see. Um, I don't think it's going to come to me. Or, like, the name will occur to me, but I'll have no way to make the connection with Newberry. So, yeah. Um, and, like, I don't even know if these children's books were at the beginning or the end of their – they could have won in, like, the 50s and then the 60s books were yeah. written yeah, afterwards. Yeah, no, I mm-hmm. – so um, I'm kind of flailing here. Uh, it's such I, a close game. I, I'm completely, um, yeah, in, in the yeah. dark here. I, All right. I know some Nobel winners. I know almost no Newberry winners. And I, yeah, I'm not yeah. going to come up with, with a name. Um, um, let, let's just say Tony Morrison then, or just say, well, lock in Morrison. Sure, Mar- something. Why not? All right, locking in Morrison. Okay, um, so I will keep quiet about that and just pass it over to Nolan. Okay, um, wow. I have no idea what this is. Um, I'm going to say congratulations, David, for this. Um, and I will fall to my knees, rip my shirt off like a soccer player, <laughs> like they scored a World Cup winning goal, if my guess works. Um, you were going on it with the adult versus children's literature there is one guy who is a nobel laureate primarily known for writing books for younger people his work primarily was not in english though so maybe he got an honor but he was not actually eligible for the primary award because he was not an american his last name is laclasio um so i'm going with that and like i said i don't think that's right well if that is right i've never heard of him so i certainly don't feel bad about missing it (laughs) The Nobel Prize does not give a lot of people who are all that well. It, they don't give it out a lot to people who are all that well known in America. So, um, but let's find out. I give you my hand in a virtual handshake to see how this goes. Yes, if, if using the dual a good, uh, a good, analogy. A good game to you, and if I've ever, and I would love to play trivia with you again. Oh yeah, it's <laughs> been a lot of fun. I, I, yeah. I agree. You guys have been worthy opponents and teammates, depending on the situation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, good good sportsmanship. And yeah, one one of the things that has worked well about this format is that everyone gets to kind of be both facing off against each other and working with each other over the course of the game. So yeah, I've uh, yeah. So in terms of 
the answers. Actually, uh, in keeping with the insect theme, there was a magazine that I had a subscription to as a child. My, my parents got me a subscription to it. It was sometimes called The New Yorker for Children, a uh, literary magazine aimed at younger readers. And it was called Cricket Magazine. Oh, I remember that. Yes, there's a whole line of them, in fact, uh, I think now called like Ladybug or Spider or something. But but yeah, Cricket was the flagship one. And uh, I think there in the last page, there was always a message from old Cricket, the character who was kind of their mascot. And in one of his columns, he shared that the, type, the, the name of the magazine was actually inspired by an author who was actually part of its founding editorial board back in the early 70s. Uh, an author who lived in America, wasn't born in America, lived there for much of his life, did not write originally in English, but translated most of his work into English. He actually wrote in a language that's um, not that common in America, but um, thanks to him, he helped keep its literary tradition alive. That language is Yiddish, and his name was Isaac Bashevis Singer. Oh, oh. dear Lord. Wow. Right? Yeah, and although um, I wasn't thinking in those terms, I think you're right. The titles of them would have had very um, unmistakably uh, Jewish names, yeah, character names in the titles, so that would have been a pretty big hint. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. I still might have said Shalom Aleichem. Wow. Like yeah, that no, was, I, that was that's, an amazing ending. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that was a real real cliffhanger there, right down to the wire. Right. All right, so I believe, I'll recheck all of these scores later, I believe the final scores we have are James 20.0, David 39.3, Nolan 35.0. <laughs> all right. Wow. One and score I, game. I think that was my same score at the end of the round prior to this, so I guess I didn't <laughs> do that good. Um. All right, so we'll now you give each of you, so we'll go in reverse order of scoring. We'll just give each of you a chance to basically, you know, 30 to 60 seconds, say anything you want. As long as it's not offensive or overly long, it'll be kept in, and we'll go in reverse order so the lowest scoring player has the last word. So uh, we'll start with David. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Yo, guys, I had a blast. This has been a lot of fun. James, Nolan, uh, great playing this game with y'all. Uh, I guess I'll say again, uh, if anybody is ever in the Gainesville, Florida area, I occasionally host pub trivia at First Magnitude Brewery. Feel free to check it out. Um, and uh, I don't know, go uh, take a walk outside sometimes and, and look at some of the bugs you see. They're pretty cool. Uh, you don't need to go to the movies to watch a 1990s documentary to uh, find some really amazing creatures, both big and small. So, uh, yeah, I advocate entomology. <laughs> All right, Nolan? Yogesh, this was an amazing experience. Um, if I ever do a trivia podcast, I hope all of you guys come on. This was one of the most fun things I've had in a long time. And I hope everybody who's listening, uh, coming in October this year, there's a cartoons of the 1980s one-day special on Learned League. So everybody take it, okay? All right. And uh, there'll, there'll also be a mini-league on uh, psychology and behavioral sciences, which I'm editing. So if you want more sunk cost questions. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And uh, James? Yeah, thanks, uh, you guys, for, for inviting me on. Thanks, uh, D David and Nolan, uh, for, for being here, too. It was it was a great, great time here. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't have anything else to say other than uh, let's go Bills uh, for their playoff game, which is happening right now, I think. Um, yes, I, I grew up in Buffalo, so I'm rooting for them, but I 
don't want to jinx it by checking the score. I'm rarely superstitious, but that's this is one of the times. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. Uh, great meeting you guys, and yeah. All right. Good to meet you guys, too. This has been Episode 6 of Recreational Thinking with Yogesh Routh. Thanks for listening.